G'day, mate. Forty here. Want to get back to the topic about uh, what do we do with the lonely and and those who just don't bring anything to the table? That they they are such a downside to your life because they're so toxic. Right? People who are incapable of normal human connection. Like, what do we do with those people? So I was listening to a fascinating episode of Decoding the Gurus. It was talking about uh, the 2012 Paul Thomas Anderson movie, uh, The Master, which is seems to be based on Scientology. Anyway, we got uh, Kyle back. Kyle, any, any thoughts on this topic? Uh, I have been troubleshooting audio for the past little while, so can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you fine. Thank you. All right. So the topic I was thinking about was this... Um, this issue of people who people don't want around or people who are lonely um, have difficulties making social connections. Um, I think I would weight things more heavily towards um, people deciding that they don't want these connections mostly. Right. Uh, I think that, People tend to be of, of two minds. Everyone is of two minds when it comes to people. Uh, on one hand, people desire connection. They want friends. They want positive experiences. But on the other hand, people are also, they come with downsides, right? And uh, I think what happens a large fraction of the as opposed to, um, this is distinct from hurting them. This is distinct from being abusive. Um, I think people can get, extremely extremely abusive and still find social connections still find a lot of social connections but what makes it so that they can't connect is when they specifically push people away um which maybe they're not even conscious of but they but they tend to go down some script where yes what they do may be hurtful but much more importantly it's also designed to push other people away And uh, let's talk about let's talk about me. Why can't I maintain a, a group coming coming on the show? I used to have such a great crowd of of contributors, and I've been unable to maintain that. Do you have any thoughts? Well, I can only talk about uh, you know after the twenty eighteen heyday when Rushton and uh, you had like all the regulars on. I I recall like you, you used to have much bigger chats, right? Uh, Dennis Dale and stuff, but. In my experience, a lot of the time, you didn't seem to want people, uh, you know, okay, you either didn't want people on or you wanted people on on an extremely narrow set of terms, which essentially amounted to pushing them away. And it wasn't that you were mean and it wasn't that you were too demanding or any of that. You could at some points be abrasive, but that was not the problem. The problem was, well, quote unquote problem you had very strong boundaries and you tended to push people directly away, right? Like people would come in and you'd be like, don't talk, right? Uh, And you'd get extremely agitated if they would talk and you'd want them to only speak at very specific points and otherwise you wouldn't want them them on at all. Uh, It's a a form of, of setting boundaries in a way that pushes people away because you didn't want you would specifically say this, you didn't want the drama, you didn't want the unpredictability of like a freewheeling conversation where people would jump in and out and all that sort of stuff, right? So you're of two minds, you want this connection, but then you also don't want the things that come with it. 
And I think that the way it nets out is that you don't really want it. You don't really want to have a show with tons of people on it. And, you know, because you're of two minds, you, you have the part of you that, that, that doesn't want to deal with all the drama and all the complication. And you have the part that wants to have, you know, all these conversations and, and viewers and, and, you know, interesting stuff happening. Right. Um, I think that that, that is what leads to the confusion, but, uh, you know, I just encourage you to, to remember how agitated you, you found yourself when things went wrong. Right. And, uh, how protective you were of your of your boundaries of the way you wanted the show to go. I think that predominated. That's can that's, be, yeah. That's really good analysis. I mean, that is exactly right, and and that's true uh, on the show and in in real life. That I'm so inflexible that I drive people away. Like I want it done on my terms, my way. And it just becomes so inflexible for other people that they say, forget this, I've got better things to do. But the way that you frame it, you keep framing it in terms of like you being the victimizer. But I don't think that's an accurate framing. I don't think that you're particularly, uh, you know, abusive or hurtful or any of that. I don't think that's the right way, right way to frame it. I think you don't want to deal with all the problems that, that come with with these uh with these connections right um that's yeah. what i think i mean I so, so like go, go ahead. You, you spend huge amounts of time sort of berating yourself when you know to my knowledge you haven't done anything that bad you're not a criminal you know there are so many people sitting in prisons right now who are going to get out and they're going to get out to you know an adoring suite of girlfriends and uh, a very rich social life involving a lot of danger and excitement and these are, you know, people who really do abuse people, who really do, you know, uh, make people afraid for their life or, or, or afraid for their safety and, um, and stuff like that. You know, they're not they don't end up being total loners who, who, who are kind of, you know, kind of hermit like. And I think people who are total loners who are kind of hermit like, you know, can fall into this introspective trap or I don't know, like they tend to be like, oh, well, what am I doing wrong? How am I hurting other people? Blah, 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 blah. The real thing is that they don't want, <laughs> they don't want all the problems and all the, all the stress and, and, uh, and, you know, they tend to have very high standards, right? So like, um, there's this incel phenomena, right? Where people don't want, uh, well, yeah, the way that they would put it is that people don't want to have sex with them. But the way that other people would put it who are looking at them would say, you don't want to have sex with people on your level, right? Now, the same thing can happen socially. You can have people who who would want to socialize, quote unquote, but they would only want to do it under such circumstances that it only comes around very infrequently or maybe not at all, right? Um, I think some people just, you know, if you look at their behavior, if you look at, at their attitude, they don't really want all that much interaction. They don't want it. They don't act like they want it. They're not drawn to it, right? And then they're they're sad, Um but it's like uh, I don't know the uh, I think it's 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 uh, it's incorrect to frame it in terms of in terms of them being abusive most of the time, right? Because as I've alluded to, there are people who are extremely abusive, but they're drawn to people. They always find themselves wanting to be. They don't have to force themselves into social situations. They're just naturally there, right? They're naturally drawn to it, like one naturally eats. And other people, 
are kind of naturally anorexic socially, right? They, they, they naturally tend to hold themselves away and they don't weight that highly enough, right? As, as the major factor, you know, uh, some part of them doesn't want, doesn't want all this, uh, all this interaction. So what is your, what is your guess as to the percentage of the population that uh, most normal, healthy people would have no incentive to have them around because they are so predictably, consistently a negative in, in one's life? I would put it at between 10 to 30% of the population is just clearly antisocial and just bad for normal, healthy people to have around. Hmm. Do you imagine that, like, people in prison, uh, like the average person in prison when they come out, they're, you know, a y- young guy. Let's paint a picture. Young Latino guy in prison, right? Uh, he comes out. Do you think he, he does a lot of talking? Or do you think he, he sits in his room on his computer and uh, and mopes about about how bad he's been to, <laughs> to, to people in his life? Right? What do you think he does? Do you think he's always at parties? I think he's always at parties, okay? I think he, he gets in trouble because he's always, uh, you know, a hooliganing around and he has girlfriends and he has all this stuff. And I just kind of re- reject the framing. I think uh, other things are happening, right? Like, it, it's not that they're, people are, I think people are much more likely to be isolated because they're boring than because they're, they're abusive, first of all. I think they're much more likely to be isolated because they're avoidant than because they're abusive. And I think they're much more likely to be isolated because, um, because they're unhealthy, right? Um, like uh, there was a, a fellow I knew who was an older man and he was a smoker. He had COPD. He had a bunch of issues and um, he was divorced. And so like you look at the situation objectively, this is a fellow who, you know, he's at a stage in his life where he's kind of boring and crippled up. And by this stage in your life, if you if you're going to have social connection, it's going to have to be mostly connections that you've already forged. Right. Um, You know, marriage, uh, old friends. uh, You know, this guy was not going to go out and party anymore because he was uh, he was he was his health was was uh, was screwed up and he liked to smoke and he liked to drink. And, you know, that seems like a very typical picture of the, uh, you know, deaths of despair that we see in middle America and we see everywhere. It's like people, they've run out of gas, right? You run out of gas as, as you go through life. And, uh, you know, you, you're, you're not as resilient to, to the, the, the pain that naturally comes with, with, you know, going out and clubbing and going out and doing anything. And uh, yeah, it's people, who, people who lack energy, people who lack vital, vitality, people who, who just uh, have no place because they haven't carved a place out for themselves in the time they had to do that, right? That, that's how I would characterize the the uh, the vast loneliness and emptiness and deaths of despair that we see, uh, you know, tremendous numbers of people going through. Um, whereas people who are just too abusive, um, I think there's there's some of that. Maybe maybe one or two percent of the population is is um, it's not it's not that they're t- too abusive. It's that they they don't know how to dance the dance, right? They they step on people's toes socially they're they're autistic or something on the spectrum and they uh they consistently disrupt whatever they're whatever they're in but but even then i know someone who is known for this right uh like i in the the pre-corona days i I would go to discussion groups 
uh, uh, you know, debate groups and stuff like that. And there was one person who was known to arrive at these groups and, uh, you know, destroy them pretty much uh, pretty reliably. Right. Through 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 uh, their behavior. And, you know, their social life is still pretty, pretty full because they keep going to the groups. Right. And, and, and they keep on finding new people to, to talk to. And, uh, you know, they never stop wanting that connection and they don't get discouraged. Um, so, you know, this keeps happening. Right. If if, if they were uh, if they were going to look for it and they were going to like, oh, well, I must uh, recuse myself after after this. And I must spend a lot of time on live streams, uh, you know, talking to a few people about all the bad things I've done. You know, people with that attitude. Um, I don't think do that much harm. Right. Because they're, they're, they're too they're too busy sort of, uh, you know, they're too mired in self-regard. Right. The people who, who really do a lot of social harm uh, don't don't have almost any self-regard at all and just merrily go from from uh, community to community, blowing them up. Right. This is a this is an archetype. And uh, these people I, I don't, don't strike me as particularly lonely. So. But, but yeah, I, I agree. There's maybe one, one or two percent of the population that is that is just too autistic, too disruptive, um, too unable to dance the social dance, and so people don't want to interact with them. Not so much because they're bad. A lot of bad people keep on, uh, you know, merrily tramping through group after group or in person after person, um, but because they they can't they they can't do the kind of in, initial dance with people. So there, there's there's a there's a big difference in our perception of reality. I perceive yeah. between 10% and 30% of the population are just going to be just going to have clearly a net negative effect on, on others. So you can call this antisocial personality disorder, but uh, we're talking about people who have a long-term pattern of disregard for or violation of the rights of others and difficulty verging on impossibility of sustaining long relationships. So, I, I essentially see this as as accounting for between ten and thirty percent of the population, and you see this as accounting for between one and two percent of the population. Is is that fair? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Okay, so what do we do now? Do you agree with me that human connection is the primary factor in personal happiness and effectiveness for most people? I mean, this is kind of a question like, uh, do you agree that, that water is one of the primary factors in, in, in human happiness, right? I mean, it is if it's lacking, but it strikes me as a very myopic perspective to, like, it's projection, right? I don't think that most people have the, well, human connection can be very broad, right? It can, can include literally everything that you do if you're, if you're broad enough. But I don't think that, that loneliness specifically is, uh, is, is a major factor in more than 30% of people's lives. Okay, you don't think loneliness is a major factor in more than 30% of people's lives, right? Yeah. And yeah. I would say loneliness is a factor probably, I'd say, yeah, I'd say 30 to 40%. But at, at, let's say the remaining 70%, I would say that the happiness level and effectiveness level of the remaining 70% is primarily determined by the level of their relationships. Like it's hard to be happy if you have a miserable marriage. It's hard to be happy yep. and effective if you don't have friends. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um... Okay, so what do we do then? So we essentially agree that 
that happiness and effectiveness that there is a socially effective personality type and and you know some some people are more socially effective than others what do we do where do the people go who are not socially effective the people who who are lonely and who just don't know how to make their way in in an ordinary world and and therefore are particularly prone to the only people who will celebrate them are virtual communities and cults and and con artists and uh people who are just desperate for converts to their their group i think we used to have a social um fabric that tried to weave people in and that social fabric is being torn apart and the result of that is uh you know a lot of people don't have a place um but there's another way to look at it right a lot of people don't don't want to have a place they don't want to make the sacrifices you know they they uh they enjoy the sowing but not the reaping like i'm thinking of uh of a lady who was uh you know basically gallivanted around for the for her whole life didn't do didn't uh, do any saving didn't marry uh basically had fun her whole life and then uh you know complained very bitterly that her family who she disregarded entirely uh wasn't 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 providing her the support that she that she wanted in her old age right you know we tend to forget that that these these old uh systems that wove people in they also came with a big bite with, with a big sting in the tail um so i think that you know i want to emphasize the role of human choice here where people I think a lot of this can be framed as people are choosing that they don't they don't want the problems that go along with with uh, with membership in in communities. But like the the framework is there for for uh, for membership, right? You you simply have to make sacrifices instead of speaking your mind. You have to toe the party line. Uh, you you have to you have to put a significant amount of your time into some group. And I think that uh, people doing that would would find themselves having the old social ties, but they prefer the freedom, and then they enjoy complaining about the the downsides of the freedom. I'm just realizing, you know, how much my my soul is still in lockdown. <laughs> I mean, like I, I I ostensibly enjoyed the lockdown so much because I I could just stay at home and read books. And, and I'm just, I'm just kind of humbled by, by how much my own soul is still in lockdown and, and how inflexible I am in my interactions with other people. How do you navigate the, the challenges of community, friendship, uh, human connection, uh, while maintaining autonomy and, and freedom and, and avoiding strangling ties well I, I think it's a it's a life phase thing i mean I'm, I'm a young man uh you know i mostly interact with people on my own terms i uh when i want connection i i i join groups i i make friendships you know we, we go out to dinner that kind of thing um i think I have my own avoidant tendencies and you know if I'm honest with, with myself it's uh well 
it's tempting to say, oh, woe is me, woe is me. You know, I, I don't have this, I don't have that. But the reality is that, you know, the, the values that I honor in the breach, as it were, are, uh, you know, I, I, I like to, to sit down and read. I've always liked this, by the way, like even as a child, uh, you know, I would um, I would spend my summers reading book after book. Right. I would uh, I would, you know, my what, one of my favorite times was was when I would um, in the summer, I, I would have no school. I would uh, I, I would read like a few chapters of a book. I would I would get outside. I, I, I would uh, I would go on a bike ride on my own in the in the beautiful, uh, fresh, sunny air. And then I would come back and I would read, read uh, you know, the next third of the book and, and, and then out again. And that, that was a very beautiful time for me. And I think I'm just a person who is very content alone, you know, most of the time. And then sometimes I'm very sad about it, right? And when I'm very sad about it, it's, it you know, uh, it's difficult for me to, it can be difficult at some time, at, at some points to realize that my my current position is the result of my preferences and my actions, uh, you know, in the very recent past. Yeah, we have such similar personalities. I mean, you, you, you're essentially articulating my own my own life story there. Uh, I, I'm just curious, when have you been happiest? For me, I've been happiest when I've been integrated into a community. I remember I went on a two-week Jewish singles trip to Israel. I had a blast. It was fantastic because I was around a group the, the whole time. And then I went off to Greece for a week on my own. And it was such a letdown. It was so, it was so wrenching and sad compared to that feeling of community. And so when I remember one Friday night, I, I went to church and just feeling alone. And someone from my class like came downstairs and said, hey, we're all sitting up here. And so I went upstairs where other members of my class were, and I just got to sit with them during the Friday night service and just had a ball, just had a blast, just had a fantastic time. And so when I got integrated into, you know, the lives of the people around me, I have just, those have been the happiest, happiest times of my life. So I'm curious when you, when you think back, the happiest times of your life, have they been when you're sitting alone reading a book? Probably not. Probably it's uh, it's it's playing with friends. To be honest, I mean, uh, yes, yeah, exactly. The, when when friendship is at its best, but like the situations that you outline that you like are kind of situations with no downside, right? It's it's where you get the social interaction, but you don't get the the um, the attendant obligations and the way you tell your life story is one where you sort of go from group to group um from religion to religion i think this this reflects that you feel chafed um by the by the restrictions of these communities or or you find yourself butting heads or whatever there's friction right and um i think the the thing i would like to see you change in terms of your your your, your self regard or, or or the way that you look at your life story, and obviously I don't know as much as you do. I don't know a tenth or or a hundredth as much as, as as you do. But just my perspective from the little window I have into your into your life is, I'd say you should you should kind of accept the legitimacy of the part of you that doesn't want these ties, right? 
you, you become, you know, it results in you being much freer, like infinitely freer than, than you would have been. And you should admit that you like the freedom. You should admit that, that, uh, that social interaction and, and uh, membership in groups comes with downsides. And, you know, often you might not be giving, giving the, the part of yourself that, um, that rejects those, those downsides enough credit or enough recognition, or, uh, you know, maybe it's not integrated enough into your, into your view of yourself. Tell you about the, the most painful decision I made in my life in, in December of 1997, I decided I wanted to write about Dennis Prager on, on a blog. And all, all my friends in L.A. I had in common with Dennis Prager. Like I went to synagogue with Dennis Prager. Like all my friends were Dennis Prager fans. And my, my closest friends told me, uh, Luke, if you write about Dennis Prager, we will never talk to you again. And so I chose to do it. And I lost all my friends in L.A. And I, I was so lonely after that. I was so broken after that that I started going to an astrologer to, to like try to heal my <laughs> relationship with Dennis Prager. Now, out of that loneliness and despair, like I, I found a path forward. Like I did enjoy the freedom and, and I did, you know, kind of get to, to break out of that particular, you know, narrow uh, mindset. And so, you know, with time, there came many benefits from, from that choice, but it was absolutely wrenching at the time to like lose all my friends in LA because I wanted to blog about one radio personality. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a couple ways to look at that. Obviously, right? There's there's one where you're the asshole, and you know you you you're just uh, you're just shitting the bed for no reason. You're you're uh, you're pooping in the punch bowl for no reason. But another way to look at it is that people are kind of well, people have their downsides, and in this case, like uh, you know what I witnessed of you in the in the uh dissident rights sphere is that you're one of the most thoughtful one of one of the most um one of the most insightful people in the space to be honest and the reaction to your insight and the reaction to um to you know your realizations and your and your honest approach to this uh to this space has basically resulted in you being isolated <clears throat> because you keep on breaking the rules of the group you're in. And, 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 and in the case that I was directly witness to, that was the dissident right. You know, you, you would, um, you brought these people on and, you know, you, you did your intellectual ex exploration honestly. And people don't like that. People really don't like that. And I think that, you know, I, I, I surmise at the moment that something similar was going on there. You know, Prager strikes me as a intelligent man, but also uh, a, a fairly pompous person someone who's, who's not all that open to criticism and uh, you know his whole, his whole group strikes me that way and uh, you know people are are kind of gross the way they respond to criticism right um, it's it's kind of contemptible and uh, I I have found that that, that uh, yeah the reason why I came on your show was that you were one of the more admirable figures in this in this whole uh, dissident right uh, uh, you know spit up and uh, you know that's what I would say. Give yourself a certain amount of credit um, and also understand that, you know, the deal you made 
by being honest is one where you're going to be isolated, right? People don't like honesty. Um, it's not entirely that, right? It's also, it's also being maybe inflexible, maybe pushing people away. But, you know, don't neglect the part where these communities that, you know, membership in these communities that you're talking about, right? It comes with a, with a big downside, which is that all these communities have, <laughs> they're all pretty arrogant. They're, they, they, they're all, uh, you know, people in groups, people in mobs represent the worst of humanity, right? And uh, even if they're an, an upjumped mob like like the Catholic Church, you know, you can still see all those tendencies that you see in a in a crowd of jeering students, you know, that I've seen in person, where a crowd of jeering students will will just circle someone and throw things at them and 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 behave in just a, in a completely abominable fashion. You can see the same things in every group, right? So that that's the downside is that uh, you know you're going to be asked if you join any group of any significance to join that jeering, uh, you know, a crowd of, of, of complete uh, moral monsters and, uh, and do it uncritically. Right. That's, that's kind of the deal. That's, that's the way these, these, uh, these, these ape behaviors work. Right. I think we're, we're an evolved uh, species and we evolved to mob just like crows do just like chimps do. We are a, a mobbing uh, species. And if you won't join a mob, you're going to find yourself alone. And that's part of the story, right? Yeah. Um, and especially, it's especially um, contemptible when when these groups form uh, with the nominal purpose of of uh, exploring the truth, no matter where it leads. Which I think is is the case for for uh, for Prager's group, and the case for for the Catholic Church, and, and and the case for for a lot of such groups. They will profess themselves to be the haven for truth seekers and and uh, and and such, and then they will behave uh, in precisely the way that you see uh, that you see a, a crowd of school children behave. Um, they'll behave in a in a clannish way. They'll behave in a, in a beastly way, and uh, you know that's how humans are. And uh, I think you feel that pretty keenly, and you tend to that tends to net out. And you not wanting the membership, right? Or, or at least, and you you refusing to abide by the community standards, right? Of yeah, the, I, of the right? yeah, yeah. I, I desperately, desperately want the membership, but I'm not willing to keep my mouth shut. And so I, I try to maintain a membership that is not possible given the things that I m feel like I must say. And so right. I, I destroy the membership. I, I then just walk away gracefully it's like with all the trump supporters who believe the 2020 election was stolen so in many things i i side with with trump and his supporters but i do not believe the election was stolen and i do right. not have any intellectual respect for those who try to make that case because i haven't seen any evidence for it right uh, but another thing i'll say is that like if you were if you were i think you could get away with it and you could still have a giant rolodex and all all these things if it weren't for the other side of the coin, where you're also you also have very very strong boundaries, and um, and uh, you seem apt to get deeply offended, or at least yeah yeah, I think that's true. I think you you're um, you are easy to wound and easy to offend. Um, whereas if you took everything in a more playful manner, and you would you know you would take your licks as it were, and you would bounce back and you'd sort of let it, let it, if it to you was not carried so heavily, if, if it was like water off a duck's back, I think you could get away with, 
with violating all these standards and, uh, you know, doing these arguably, uh, you know, anti-group or even anti-social things. And, and you'd still have, uh, you know, you, 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 you would have no, no lack of connection with, with people who are members of, the, of these groups. But, you know, you have these, these two traits of sort of honesty and uh, willingness or, or even desire to confront uh, group delusions. And also you're, you're kind of, uh, you, you have very strong boundaries and you're a little inflexible and you, uh, you, aren't, you aren't that desiring of human connection relative to, I think, the, the, the human average, right? Yeah, I, I think that the human average is to want to spend about eight hours a day around other people. And my, my inclination, well, my, my habit or pattern is often just spending an hour a day around other people. So while I yeah, think, yeah. think, you know, spending at least four hours a day around other people would definitely be in my self-interest, but my default goes to much, much less human interaction than would be good for me. I'm just curious about you. Is your is your natural default for human interaction set at a lower state than would be good for you? Uh, for sure, yeah, I think so. Although, again, good for you is a uh, you know there are times when lacking human connection makes you very very miserable. But there are also there's also misery that is avoided, right? Which is which is something that you need to you need to also put on the, on the ledger there. Um, And how would... I think flexibility is really important, right? Mm -hmm. You can be you can be very very um, you can be very easy to wound, and you can be uh, very <laughs> very quick to wound others, and you can still have uh, a lot of connection if you're if you're also flexible, right? If you're also willing to sort of take things as as they come, and uh, and you know keep on keep on interacting even if it gets very unpleasant, right? But if you close yourself off, then, you know, your, your, your range is, is much narrower. And that's exactly what's happened. I've, I've closed myself off and I'm streaming to 10 people. Now, 20 people. <laughs> how would you, let's say that you decided to make YouTube or, or some live streaming platform. Let's just say you decide to make it your full-time gig. How would you navigate uh, building up a community of, of guests and, and commentators and, and compadres as you build, if you were to build, say, a live streaming career? How would you navigate these questions? Hmm. How would you build up? Well, I mean, a big part of it is is uh, is always continuing to to ask on people who who were. Um, who were there previously like like um you'll do this thing where you're like um the door is always open for for all these old people to 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 come on and stuff but uh you know that's not how i, I would bet that's not how people feel right i would bet that they don't feel that the door is open and you just saying that doesn't really doesn't really make it so um you you know you'd have to kind of you know be more expressive and i'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that's your authentic self or not um but yeah like um the the way things concluded, uh, at least in 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 the places where I witnessed it, was was in a manner where where it seemed like you didn't want these people back, right? And some of them I don't. I, I got to admit, some of them I do not want back. Right, right. In their in their current state, anyway. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big it's a big bundle of headaches. I mean, uh, if you <laughs> most of the uh, most of the streamers, the, the big time streamers seem to confess to feelings of anxiety and depression and, you know, all kinds of, you know, all kinds of natural results of the of the stressors of of continuing to maintain a, a large community. Right. It's a it's a painful thing. What kind bring of back Norvin? <laughs> yeah, Norvin Hobbs. <laughs> what kind of community standards would you have on on your show? Hmm. You know, I think community standards are entirely the wrong approach. Basically, like I think that the healthy thing to do is to have people violate your boundaries, get angry, um, ban them, and then forgive them. Right, kind of in that order. Whereas this community standards thing, like emphasizing like like a big set of rules, has the effect of like creating a wall, right? Like like a wall of frost. It's better to be uh, to be you know intermittently fiery and then warm, than to than to, than to sort of narrow down interaction into into a very very small prescribed set of set of uh, set of norms. And uh, you know you'll just mostly turn people away by doing that. I think that's kind of my my thought like like obviously you should have boundaries and protect them and the way you should do that i think is it's healthier done the way that almost everyone does it which is just to ban people when when you annoy when, when they're when they annoy you just 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 ban them you know yell at them a bit and ban them and then let them back in um like uh you know imagine that, that you're parenting someone and uh instead of just just disciplining them when they do something wrong you respond by creating like like a new rule that's set in stone until they're just sort of <laughs> they're just walking some tripwire of like oh well this rule and that rule and this rule and that rule and you know again it has the effect of pushing people away but uh, yeah standards yes the standard should be should be uh, enforced in a human way by by you and your moderator team and it's people who are annoying uh, you know people who are, who are disruptive you ban them and let them back in after a while and then if they keep doing it then eventually they're banned permanently that's what I think and uh, you know. Trying to prescribe human interaction into into a set of rules, um, you know, I, I don't think it's 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 really worth it. Hmm. And did you pay any attention to Mister Medica versus Nick Fuentes? Oh uh, yeah, I've been liking the Kino Casino, uh, you know, the return of blood sports. I think it's I don't know. I think in a sense, people don't give Nick enough credit because. Um, like what he's doing is incredibly difficult. Like uh, you know, be, being a live streamer and maintaining a large audience, uh, you know, without without any any partners, really, on a stream. Like he's doing solo streams for many many hours, and he's maintaining viewership. That that takes a lot of wackiness, right? It, it you know, it's it, it's a stream of consciousness style where you're going to be able to isolate, um, you know, any parts you want, and uh, you know, say that it's uh, you know, make him look crazy. Um, but I don't know. I'm not unhappy about the way that the uh, the the dissident right, you know, the the all right has has imploded. Because uh, as I as I sort of went through my my journey on your show, I kind of realized that their uh, their their main their main thing is uh, is is being anti-Semitic. So it's like that's cool. That can be your thing. But uh, I hope you you fail. Hope you hope you experience as much pain as possible. I'm I'm hostile to. Uh, to anti-Semites because they're hostile to me. I'm kind of a reciprocal guy, and I don't think don't think it has to be more complicated than that. I, I think it's a 
yeah, I, I I enjoy the their their flailing because I think that they're they're uh they're that they hate me and they hate my family and they basically wish me wish me the worst, uh, which is fair, <laughs> fair enough, buddy. But then I wish the same for you. So, who do you think uh, won Fuentes versus Metica? Um, I mean, I guess I I, I guess Metica won, but it's it's difficult to say who who won when you have these two communities that are utterly you know divergent right um, i think nick is trying to do his own thing and uh these these medicare people are trying to do their own thing and there's no there's no moral consensus between these groups at all right they they nominally seem very similar they're both kind of right wing alt right ish people um who are you know or internet personalities, uh, but when it, when you come down to it, they have like completely different goals and uh, and values and aspirations. Um, yeah, and like a go ahead. yeah, like Nick has created or or Nick has joined a kind of you know a a group of people who are who are like dark matter, you know, to the to the rest of society. Right? They have their own very specific perspective and he's kind of been been sucked into that rather than co-opting it right um which is kind of inevitable i guess if you're if you're just one person and you're you're on a no-fly list and you're you know you're you're isolated to the degree that uh these people are and what do you make of these spiraling swatting and doxing and you just can't go too low between ethan ralph's crowd and uh the Kino Casino crowd and Mr. Medica. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Kino Casino, I noticed that they t- tend to kind of frame themselves as being aloof, even though they, they pretend not to, right? They they tend to act as if they're they're better than, than this, but you know, I don't I think that, that they're all they're all kind of cut from the same cloth, to be honest. They all seem uh pretty crazy, pretty antisocial, um pretty resentful, right? Uh, the the resentment is a is is big. They they resent each other just uh, to a rather astonishing extent, and they uh, they hold on to grudges, and it's entertaining. I mean, uh, people like to watch that, which is uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's part of why becoming a streamer. It's like you you might say, oh, I want an audience, but do you want the things that come with the audience? Right? Do you want do you want to, to cater to the tastes of of the audience? Do you want all that all that crap? Because what people want is. Uh, is is blood sports they want they want uh personal destruction they, they want destructive behavior um and i suppose you know people can do that right it's, it's like jackass right it's like the popularity of jackass that's uh what people want so when i say i, I i'd rather i'd rather have 10 people watching a show where i talk about what i want rather than a thousand live viewers uh watching you know, a blood sports that I'm hosting. Do you think I'm fooling myself? Do you think I'm trying to fool the audience? Do you think I'm being true to myself? I think you're of two minds. I think that yes. you're kind of sad about the death of your channel, and then you're and then you're also like happy enough to deal with the with the drama. And uh, yeah, you want you want to work on combining those. John Wolf says they're antisocial, unlike yourself. I certainly have antisocial tendencies, and I'll admit it. Right? Um, antisocial and avoidant tendencies. Sure. You're using antisocial in the meaning of not wanting to be social, but as the term is used 
technically it means to have a disregard of and violate the rights of others. So, yeah. I mean, so which, uh, which antisocial are you? I think on, on the show, I was uh, at times aggressive and, you know, cruel and, you know, just generally badly behaved. I didn't comport myself in a, uh, in a kind manner. I think it's because I, I'm just not that kind. That's what I think. Um, I don't think that I, I can see, you know, especially the political tendencies of, of of these folks reflected in me in some ways, and uh, and also the personal tendencies in terms of uh, I'm I'm a fairly angry person, and uh, you know I maybe I lash out more than I should, and all that, especially on on this show. Um, so I'll I'll cop to that. I don't really. I don't know. I I think that the way that these people operate is uh is i think that they don't like <laughs> they don't like each other right they really don't like each other and we saw a similar kind of thing evolve on on this show at certain points where uh you know we, we had a bunch of characters evolve really intense dislike for each other and we had feuds and we had like uh I don't know if we had doxings, but we, we, we had something next to doxings. And I think it, it reflected the personalities of the people involved. Um, yeah, things things got kind of dark uh, on this on this uh, in, in the leucosphere. And I think it ref reflected the tendencies of the people there more than anything else. So it, it seems like almost nobody on the distant right has been able to sustain uh, group streaming. Well, I mean, I guess Ethan Ralph does a, a group show. Um, but what what do you make of the the inability, generally speaking, of people on, on the distant right to be able to maintain uh, a, a group show and, and instead dissolving into often you know needless uh, flame wars and re recriminations? I mean, I think it's mostly um, I think it's more normal then maybe maybe you're making it out to be like if if you if you follow the left at all you see a lot of similar things happening a lot of similar things and i think that um like fundamentally we, we might be underweighting the uh the the young man factor i think uh young men are assholes that's what i think <laughs> ricardo says i would ragdoll kyle if i wanted to <laughs> i don't think that's what happened on the stream bro but i don't <laughs> think we're gonna have a rematch yeah. um yeah it's just I think young men are assholes. I think that that's, that's an underweighted factor. Um, you know, you can look around the globe and you can look at, at, at English soccer fans and you can look at, at uh, you know, the, the, African, the African problems. And, you know, you, you can look from the very, very northern tip of the world to the very southern tip of the world and you can see young men acting like complete assholes in ways that are even, even more antisocial and even more nasty than, than, than the young men in online politics groups uh, and online politics chats online so so in these feuds i mean they're going after each other's family i mean there's absolutely nothing sacred i mean nick Fuentes <laughs> will say you know christ is king and then say well mr medica you you know you'll be dead soon of cancer you're irrelevant uh i mean Fuentes's behavior just seems to be the opposite of christ is king uh medica the nihilist and and sticks and hammer 
the person into the occult or you know the so-called satanist you know seem far more christ-like than than a nick fuentes any thoughts yeah i don't know i mean is it like that big a fucking deal at all like uh they're going after each other's families i mean you, you can look at what people are actually doing in like soccer hooligan groups you know like the groups of, of russian slavs the, the psychopaths they'll run around they'll beat people to an inch of their lives uh you know wh where the rule of law is 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 less strong they'll do far worse things and clearly their behavior is you know on a vector towards that clearly if there weren't police these young men would be killing people right killing people not you know doxing <laughs> bro i posted your address online bro this is this is super this is super super big deal bro they have your address bro i mean people kill people right that's what that's what young people men want to do young men want to kill as a rule i think they want to literally kill people right yeah so this is not on on the scale of antisocial behavior this is this, this doesn't really register that much uh at all so uh i guess i kind of reject the premise where like this is this is all remarkably antisocial. I think it might be more normal than um, than we're admitting. Uh, the whole thing, the whole the whole thing where where uh, you know groups of young men get together and argue. I don't think it generally turns out that harmoniously. You know, no matter what, I don't think I don't think it's in the cards. So, what's more pro-social, doing a blood sports with one thousand live viewers, or doing? a stream where you just talk about what you want to talk about and have only 10 live viewers uh, clearly the second is more pro-social but i don't think that either are that meaningfully anti-social or pro-social i think it's mostly like a question of of what you want and you know all these interactions are are even more voluntary than a group of people meeting in a in in meet space right like anyone can leave at any time uh, you know, people can can get psychological damage from these things, but I, it it reflects their own their own kind of tendencies and their own weaknesses and and their own problems that they have to work out. Um, even more than say MMA or or cage fighting matches reflect the 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 tendencies and the and the problems of the people who who end up there. Right? It's not like in in a cage fighting arena, the people there were, were literally forced there at gunpoint. That would be a completely different situation. But as it is. They're there as a reflection of their own tendencies, of their own desires. Um, and if it wasn't expressed in that way, it might be expressed in another way. Um, so there's some responsibility for the people who, the people who run the, the cage match, but not, not that much. Right? I don't think it's, it's fundamentally just, uh, you know, taking, taking human energies that would be, that, that exist in this direction, in this kind of antisocial, um, angry direction. Uh, how much responsibility do you think I I bear for asking Casey to do some shows on Mein Kampf? Oh, um, none really. I mean, you're you're kind of being a scholar, to be honest. I mean, you're 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 being someone who you're you're you're, you're approaching things in a scholarly manner. In if it's wrong to do what, what you did in in exploring, uh, you know, Hitler's ideology, then. You know, the whole Western civilization is wrong in terms of how it approaches these questions, which it might be. But, uh, you know, I don't think that anything you did there was was out of bounds at all in, in terms of, you know, exploring these ideas as honestly and as forthrightly as you could. Uh, um, how do you then understand an English literature professor who's married, who's about 40 years of age, who's got kids and then spirals, it seems, after reading Mein Kampf? How do you understand that?
I think a lot of people are um, have not been exposed to to an honest uh, an honest discussion about history and an honest uh, you know exploration of, of of ideologies, and it's not that much of a surprise to me that it would destabilize people, especially people who are who are Christian. Frankly, I think people who are Christian um, at any time really, but especially today, you know, it kind of reflects um, reflects a lack of exploration. And a, a vulnerability to to uh, to new ideologies, to new ideas, because you know people who who freely explore, um, who freely explore ideologies, who freely explore philosophy and all that stuff, they generally don't end up vanilla Christians. You know, maybe they end up some kind of non-denominational crazy thing, but um, they don't end up being vanilla Christians almost ever, as far as I can see. So. Christians are pretty vulnerable to this. And then that's why Christianity is dying. That's why, you know, Christian the prevalence of, of, of Christianity is, is, is dropping like a stone because it's very vulnerable to, uh, to free exploration. Maybe everything is, but Christianity definitely is. It seems for people like Casey and Nick Fuentes, the Christ is King is just a, a much more appealing banner for their, for their politics rather than, you know, white is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, it's a it's it's, it's a way of being sneakily anti-Semitic or not that sneakily anti-Semitic. Um, but no, no, it's more than that. It's also, uh, you know, a righteous anger at uh, at the uh, the changes that have come over society, which which have wrong-footed lots of people, right? Like, uh, let's not forget that that context is that we've had a giant social revolution and there have been casualties, and among these casualties are are sexual standards and social standards that that would result in. Um, in certain benefits for some people and uh yeah like certainly we're, we're seeing child abuse on a level that, that we wouldn't have seen like that that's that, that's an allegation of the right and it's correct we're seeing a um we're seeing the sexualization of children uh in a in a very frightening and uh and probably harmful way we're we're seeing the breakdown of the family we're, we're, we're seeing uh you know the shattering or the tearing of the social weave and uh you know young men not getting married and uh and you know the uh kind of a japanification a, a splitting of the sexes and all all this kind of stuff so they're angry and uh you know the problem is that there's not really a coherent banner to stand under and christianity included is not really a coherent banner to stand under because many christians are in support of all the stuff that's going on right um but there's no counter movement to all of this uh, that is that is more coherent than just saying that you're Christian, I guess. Right. There's no secular conservatism to really point to. That's kind of the, the big failure of, of Western intellectuals is that, is that they haven't produced a coherent uh, secular conservative perspective. And what's your perspective on Mr. Medica? I think, uh, yeah, he's a. Uh, very scornful individual. He's uh, he likes to 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 make fun of people and uh, and be aloof and all that sort of thing. Uh, kind of a comedian type, like a comedian journalist hybrid. Um, I watched his videos, his internet aristocrat videos back in the day. Um, I mean, he's very good at what he does. He's like yeah, he's a, funny. He's a crash course in reality. Yeah, well. I don't know about that. 
I don't think that he's. Uh, I think he's very good at spinning a narrative. I'm not sure that that, that his narrative is is all that accurate. Um, yeah, he he, he was uh, he was very good uh, at sort of giving out the pro gamergate perspective back in the day, and he did all these kind of yeah. He's, he's like a journalist. Basically, what I think of him is is he's uh, he's basically a new age journalist and uh, has all the problems that you see with journalists. Like they 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 like to 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 pull a story together, and generally at the uh, uh, at the cost of of the truth, because the truth is usually not neat. Truth is usually not neat and clean and, and coming together in in one one simple narrative. And what's your perspective on Ethan Ralph? Um, very Alex Jones like, you know, with his with his divorce and his uh, his health problems and his uh, yeah. Very Alex Jones like, like a like a like a little mini Alex Jones, uh, and also unhealthy. Very unhealthy, it seems to me. And how much have you found your internet, your your virtual personality, has affected your real life person? Well, uh, the show I was on was very small, <laughs> so. Uh, pretty much nobody saw it, and that was basically the beginning and end of it, right? Um, I don't think I had it had a big psychological effect on me. I think that, like, um, in terms of being like internet blood sports and arguing and all that stuff, I mean, it, it was just a different version of that. But it's something I've been doing for my whole life, frankly, is uh, is arguing online about politics and ideology. And uh, yeah, this was just a, a new in incarnation of that. It wasn't like. Um, it didn't end up having a very profound effect. <laughs> and I'm thinking what I'd say that, I would say that, that, that listening to you without talking to you probably had had a bigger effect on, on like my, my ideological thinking. Right. Like I, I still credit you with with bringing a lot of clarity to, to, to the uh, to the problems with dissident right. And, uh, you know, the, the way that they, they would they would avoid pointing to their own, you know. The whole movement basically pretended to be intellectually honest and and forthrightly you know well yeah there's this story all the time every time right they they paint themselves as being the the unflinching guardians of the truth and then when they come upon a truth that is inconvenient for them they suddenly turn into everybody else and uh that's something that, that you uh you uncovered very adeptly i think it's sort of your 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 story pro probably in all these groups is is you're doing this over and over and over again and you're very good at it and uh yeah that you know i think that uh, I, I admire the clarity with which you uh, you you uh, approach that situation. So yeah, I think uh, you had a pretty big effect on me, but my participation in the show, uh, you know, not so much. What are your views on Curtis Yarvin? I think he's careless. I think he's um, he's loose with the facts, and that's a that's a big flaw. Is that he's he's a little bit loose with the facts, and the facts are important. And he he claims to be again. He claims to be. Uh, you know the forthright sword of of truth, but um, yeah, like uh, if you saw his conversation with Michael Anton, I think Michael Anton had a much more accurate view of history, for example. Um, yeah, Curtis yeah. Jarvins doesn't seem to have a very accurate understanding of his own limits and and his own knowledge. He seems to have a vastly exaggerated sense of his own learning. I don't think he's. He he's definitely knows a lot, um, and I think he his 
he has a lot of a lot of interesting and uh, provocative writing. I don't think he's an idiot, but I do think that uh, like many people, like uh, what's his face, the guns, germs, and steel author. Yeah, he's, Jared uh, Diamond. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he takes liberties with the truth, so that's uh, that's annoying. Well, with, with Curtis Yavin, he's such an autodidact, and so this is common with autodidacts, the self-taught, that they have no no understanding of the limits of their own knowledge. And so I, I just find it unbearable listening to Curtis Yavin that he's pronouncing on all sorts of things that he doesn't know very much about. While if you try to get away with that in the academy, you'd be smacked down fairly quickly. Uh, yeah. Of course, in the academy, you'll be slapped down for for telling the truth in a lot of cases too. So there's, there's your upside and there's your downside there. Um, I mean, you probably know how I, I think about this. I mean, I, I view the, uh, the Academy as a whole to be far more insidious than Curtis Yarvin because you'll see, um, a lot of rigor and a lot of honesty in a lot of areas, but then in certain crucial areas, uh, that will be absent or reversed. So, uh, it's like the Nazis, the Nazis were, um, you know, brilliant scientists. They they knew a whole lot. They were they were great engineers. There was a lot of rigor there, but there was also uh, a certain a certain bent, a certain perspective, a certain unwillingness to to accept new facts when they were inconvenient to the ideology or the or the uh, the current campaign of the of the uh, of the ruling class or the or the ruling ideology. And so you can have like people who are brilliant and um, and knowledgeable and unaligned, right? The alignment can be the most important thing, you know. It can be a, you can have a warship with uh, beautifully engineered steam turbines and cannons and um, and full fuel bays and, and all this stuff and and oh, oh how wonderful it is. But it can be a warship that's steaming towards you to shoot you. Or it can be a warship that's steaming towards the enemy to defend you, and uh, you know they look basically the same. And you know there was the same rigor, maybe even more rigor in the in the way the Japanese built their weapons, but they were directed uh, in a in a very negative way. And uh, that's what you have to look at: is what direction they're they're steaming in, uh, and what they're shooting at. And the academy uh, is shooting in the wrong direction, and Curtis Jarvin is shooting in the right direction, and that deserves quite a lot of uh, emphasis. And what do you make of Tucker Carlson and how much do you consume? I like him. Uh, I, I subscribe to Fox and friends just to get his, uh, his Tucker Carlson today show and, and watch his Curtis Yarvin interviews and some other interviews. I liked his Michael Anton interview. Uh, recently I liked his Amy Wax interview, but it's interspersed with these unbearable, uh, I don't know, just idiots. So, yeah, Tucker Carlson has has these moments of insight interspersed with with just utter lunacy. He has his his uh, his his UFO craze, for example, all kinds of like just kind of lowbrow, in my opinion, low IQ stuff. But then he also has has a lot of sophisticated stuff, and he's pointed in the right direction. So I like him. Um, I think uh, you know many of his uh, conversations are are uh, uh, stand the test of time. They're they're interesting. Uh, yeah. I like Michael Anton too, by the way, uh, like a similar story. Tell me more about Anton because I, I was a huge fan of Anton and then I just then the, found him increasingly reckless with reckless disregard for the truth, particularly vis-a-vis yeah, the yeah, 2020 like, election. Yeah, yeah, the election thing. Like everybody's lying about that, apparently. Um, yeah, I mean, 
a liar. <laughs> no, no, I, I think, I think, but all these members of, of groups are, are, are liars. Okay. Like anyone who, who finds themselves a member of a group and, uh, you know, intellectually and stays in that group and doesn't find himself at odds with them. Right. The only way to do that is to be a liar. Right. Or, or to be, uh, you know, hive minded in such a way that, that you believe you're not lying when you are. So I, I just have different expectations than you, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, to circle back to the personal, it seems like you you have this thing where where you'll you'll admire a group, and then you'll you'll see its uh, its hypocrisy, its lies, its deception, and then you'll you'll be turned off by it, and that that's good in some ways, but you know, um, just you know, maybe part of it is 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 uh, part of it is motivated by some some belief or some confusion that maybe there's some group that doesn't do this. Maybe there's some group that rises beyond these tendencies. And there isn't. They're all like this. Everyone. You'll never find a group that, that doesn't lie, that doesn't uh, have its group think it's deception, uh, it's, it's selfishness, all, all that stuff. So it's true of the American right and the American new right and the American alt-right and all that stuff. It's all like that. So Anton is a member of, of the American new right uh, the national conservative movement, and uh, as such, he he will lie to defend it, or he will he will uh, he will engage in groupthink. He will believe absurdities in order to be a member of this group and to uh, defend his perspective. So Tucker Carlson did a special on the end of masculinity, where he featured a blokes talking about how important it was to get sunshine on your testicles. Uh, you've probably gotten more sunshine on your testicles than <laughs> anyone I've ever spoken to. Can you can you can you talk about the benefits that you receive from this? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh yeah. It's just typical quack stuff, I guess, right? It's like, well, sun is important, true. Your balls are important, true. So sun on your balls, that's double important. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, whatever. It's uh fairly harmless, I suppose, hopefully. So the the New York Times did a big three parter on on Tucker Carlson. I, I read it, didn't didn't find much in it that I didn't already know, didn't uh, didn't uh, particularly move me one way or another. But Tucker is going to speak in Iowa. So do you think Tucker is a realistic candidate for president in twenty twenty four? Trump is going to destroy everybody unless he has a health problem. If Trump has like a health crisis, then maybe someone else can win. But otherwise, and that that somebody is going to be DeSantis. But if it's not. But if Trump can run as healthy Trump, he's going to annihilate everybody and win the nomination. And then, um, yeah, we'll see what happens after that. I think DeSantis is, is the next in line uh, pretty solidly. How viable a candidate for president do you think Tucker Carlson is just on his own, his own merits? <sighs> I don't know. Um would that excite vulnerable. you? Would he's... that would that excite you, a Tucker candidacy? Not really. No, I prefer him in his role as he is. Uh, you know, I think we want these uh, DeSantis types. We want these kind of operators, right? Um, you know, we we want people who like at least Trump had some business experience, right? Uh, you know, getting things done. <laughs> we we saw how that worked out, yeah. but. Yeah, like ideally, like politicians who 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 are who are aligned, like DeSantis is. DeSantis is on board with with the whole anti woke thing, and he's he's experienced. He's 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 held a higher office, and he's governed. So we want people like that, and we want to you know drive things home. 
dismantle the administrative state, yada, yada, yada. You know, that kind of thing. Dismantle? Did I say dismantle? I mean just replace them with our guys. And and how effective do you think uh, DeSantis is for our side? I think pretty effective. I mean, he seems like a decent governor. Uh, you know, he, he gets the things he wants done, done. So I think pretty effective. I think the conservative movement is uh, is moving in a in a nice direction, right? The education polarization has resulted in a movement that, uh, you know, they genuinely genuinely believe that the election was stolen, that they won the election. Uh, Biden was at plus seven percent in the independent polling, and he won the election. And they think that he he lost it. So that means that for the foreseeable future, they're going to believe they won every election, um, which is nice. It's a morale boost. So what's your perspective on Russia versus Ukraine? What are the things that you're thinking about vis-a-vis that conflict and its potential to to create a, a bigger conflagration in the world? My tendency is to be gloomy, but, you know, <laughs> um, when, when this started, this, w- this was what I sort of outlined as my ideal outcome, is that Russia invades, but it's not successful and it pays a big price, right? Like if Russia invades and it ends quickly with a Russian victory, that's pretty bad because it's 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 an invitation for Russia to invade the ne- the next country and the next and the next. It just is right. Weakness is provocative. Weakness invites invasion. The, the way it's happened now is that Russia is sort of bogged down there for the indefinite future, and maybe that'll be they'll be stuck there and it'll be isolated to that region. However, that region is pretty important. Um, the Russia-Ukraine area, a lot of the world's food, a lot of the world's oil comes from that, those two countries. So it's pretty disruptive, but at least Russia is being bogged down and it's not going in in totally unpredictable ways. They've, they've, uh, they've reduced their, the scale of their ambitions to the Donbass, and uh, they might not even get that. So, yeah. Or the Novorossiya, rather. They've reduced the scale of their ambitions to Novorossiya, and they might not, not even get that. So what are the chances of nuclear war from this? This doesn't meaningfully impact the, the, the nuclear situation at all. It's just uh it's just psychology. It's all it's all about the psychological impact this has on the on the key players, which are Joseph R. Biden and Vladimir Putin. Uh so what psychological impact is it having? Well, Putin seems a little agitated. He seems wrong-footed by this. Biden is now calling for Putin to be uh, ousted. So uh, seems to have increased the risk of a nuclear war significantly because both sides are, are now considerably more hostile and also more insecure than they were previously. So, well, uh, yeah. Given how, old- given how inept Russia's military appears if russia does get into a fight with nato nato will absolutely destroy them just wipe the floor with them which would then leave russia with the choice between retreating to its own borders with its tail between its legs or going nuclear so that would be a dangerous dilemma i would think yeah um there's not going to be a fallout war between nato and russia conventional war because russia will under these, it, Russia was already inclined to go nuclear, tactical nuclear, um, before this. Now this will be completely cemented. 
but they have no chance unless they they use tactical nuclear weapons. So they will, if there's a war between Russia and NATO. Um, and maybe that'll who knows how that'll go. We have no precedent for this. We don't know. We don't know what the reaction is going to be. Uh, one underrated possibility, I think, is that uh, the escalate the de-escalate framework will work. Russia will use some nukes. Uh, people will realize that they're serious and uh, treat them like North Korea. Like we haven't invaded North Korea. Um, we're hostile to them. We're implacably hostile. They're implac- implacably hostile to us. But we kind of just uh, have our own separate spheres and we don't interact uh, any more than we need to. Wait, but you said Russia may use some nukes. North Korea has not exploded nukes on, on other people. So this would be very different. I mean, if if Russia starts dropping nuclear bombs on, on Kiev, what do you think would happen or on Warsaw? Oh, you would see, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it would harden into a North Korea type situation where we're, we're just attempting to isolate them. I don't think we would nuke Russia in retaliation for Russia nuking um, uh, Ukraine or even Poland. Uh, I think we want to posture that, but I don't, I don't think we would do that uh, because, you know, there's a material difference between some Eastern European countries getting nuked and every American city getting nuked. Um, so the way we want to posture is that, you know, not one step beyond this line shall you go, Vladimir Putin, without us nuking you with everything we have. But uh, we don't want to have every American city uh, nuked. That would be a big victory for China if uh, if every single American city was reduced to ruins. So I don't think we're going to let that happen. Uh, we, would, we, we would definitely, though, what we would definitely do in that situation is we'd be willing to nuke Russia to stop them from, from taking anything over. Uh, like we, we'd, we'd be willing to go scorched earth on Russia outside of Russia's borders. Outside of Russia's borders. We'd be willing to go scorched earth on them. Um, so I think it would uh, realistically lead to like a kind of a, a charred, uh, you know, buffer zone between the nuclear powers and they'd be utterly hostile to each other forever like North Korea and the rest of the world. And uh, that'd be it. Just just a very, very grim standoff akin to if the Nazis got nukes and we got nukes at the same time and we just stared at each other, um, you know, hatefully. But uh, I don't think that borderland conflicts are going to escalate into nukes uh, tossed at each other's main cities because, um, like, <laughs> how much does, does, does all of Eastern Europe matter to us? It matters to us about one thousandth as much as even one major city being nuked so and how mentally intact do you think joe biden is i think he's kind of crazy but trump was kind of crazy uh, we have a long tradition of kind of crazy president presidents um uh, he's an establishment type unlike trump so less of a wild card uh, i think he'll listen to his advisors and this is really more of a more of a group thing than about Joseph R. Biden's individual um, thoughts on this. Like, I think, I think he has some effect on, on the margins, but he's not going to order a nuclear strike randomly or something. Trump would not be obeyed if he did that. Uh, Biden wouldn't do it in the first place. And is Joe Biden just a puppet? No, he's, uh, he's president. He's genuinely president, but he's an establishment president. So he's uh, he naturally tends to walk along circumscribed paths. Um, and he's, uh, he's almost a lame duck because everyone thinks he's going to lose Congress very soon. So uh, he's a weak president. 
but he's not not a fake president. He's the most powerful person in the country. But uh, you know, he's ex- I don't think he's he's has any secret agenda. I think his agenda is out there, but he uh, he has he only has Congress on on the tiniest of margins, and he's going to lose it soon. So his ability to act is is limited. Who would you say is the most powerful man in the world right now? Um, probably, uh, probably Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Joe Biden is probably the most powerful person in the world. But, but, I think uh, you could see you could make an argument for Xi, Xi, uh, Xi Jinping because his economy is likely to converge with with America's economy size. And uh, he's going to be in charge for life. So, I mean, realistically, if we're not just looking at power today, uh, Xi Jinping is probably the most, the most expected to be the most powerful person in the world, you know, so, based on the expected value of, of his whole life in charge. So I've got a, a friend who argues that uh, Ron Klain or Barack Obama are more powerful than Joe Biden because Biden's essentially just a puppet of these people. And that's think? absurd, in my opinion. I <laughs> that's think what can... I think, too. Uh, what do you think we should be doing vis-a-vis Iran? Should we be trying to renegotiate and return to that deal that Obama got with Iran? I think the Iran deal was much maligned, but was basically fine. Um, yeah, but I do have to go. Okay. It was good, good talking to, talk to you, man. To you. Take care, man. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Thanks for letting me on again. Yep. Yep. Like the old days. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Okay. I want to go back to the Decoding the Gurus podcast, play it and discuss it the host of christopher kavanaugh anthropologist based in japan matthew brown psychologist at the university of central queensland their guests are the hosts of the academic podcast very bad wizards but (laughs) i kind of disagree a bit about it being effective you know what i mean you're putting aside the thousands of years of aliens and so on the actual methods and so on being effective because that's true, but it's true in a very kind of superficial way. Like those methods, those interpersonal things are, are always effective and little experience. In, in that the I hands of, of the right person, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Like I, I've told this story to Chris, but really briefly, like I was in Japan actually when I went to visit a friend of a friend and, and she was into color therapy and there was all these bottles of different colored oils and, and you choose a couple of colors. Like I am so open and I... I at various times like so interested in, in these kind of, of therapies like i just enjoy them I, I think i just probably just enjoy the personal attention like i remember one rosh hashanah i met a medical intuit in, intuitionist and she recommended to me she like recommended this thing to me, like, you know, this special color fragrance that would like cleanse my aura. And, and even though I was like absolutely broke, you know, over $50,000 in credit card debt, I bought this, like this, this $50, you know, uh, bottle of things that I should tap on my forehead and on my neck. I didn't, didn't notice any difference, but she did also send me to dragon herbs, which was a great recommendation. I got some benefit from going to there. That appeal to you. And they represent your future and your president I mean, and, like and so on. You, you'd, you'd love this. Yeah. <laughs> and the practitioner sits there across from you and like stares into your eyes and holds your hands and touches your arm and shoulder. And they, they talk about you for like 30 minutes or so. And so I went along to that being the skeptic guy 
And I loved it that you could feel the power of the interpersonal experience. And you can see how you know, all of these cults, all of these quack kind of things, they always generate a genuine, in inverted commas, uh, response because we're monkeys and, and that sort of shit works on us. So, well, allow me to retort. I, I don't think I disagree with you. I think though what I, what you're saying, what I'm saying is simply that what the active ingredient is in color therapy is clearly not the colors, it's the connection. And I think that. Yeah. So this medical intuitionist, so I've used almost the entire bottle. I, I mean, I've hardly used it the last 10 years, but I feel like I need to get my money's worth. And so this is, this is the equilibrium. It is a balance of herbs and oils. It contains plant and crystal energies. Many people think plant energies are awesome. And other people think, oh, crystal energies are the way to go. But guys, you've got you've to gotta try the plant and, and crystal combination if you really want to reap, reap the benefits. And don't just pick up orosomo on the basis of what looks good to you. You need to find a practitioner, right? If you want to feel empowered, I mean, there are some wonderful orosoma practitioners here to get like the, the best balance of of uh, herbal and 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 plant and, and crystal energies. Like you really need them together. So I got equilibrium, and this is how you create an abundantly joyful life. That's what the medical intuitionist told me. Now she'd just been in a bad car accident, so she said she wasn't really all there. But we, we traded work. Like she she gave me some of her medical intuition. Oh, this is good. We're all interconnected and interrelated. This is a global community offering orosomal consultations in over 40 countries, including England, Japan, and the United States. But where's I want to find out. Trust your intuition, equilibrium bottles. So, okay, let's go to the product. Oh, equilibrium. That's the one I want. Yeah, that's what... See, this is what I got. It it harnesses the vibrational powers of Mother Nature, right? So Orosoma equilibrium bottles are a system of color, plant, and crystal energies that bring you closer to self-understanding. So Kyle was impressed to, to some degree with my levels of self-understanding and, and my understanding of the alt-right. And in retrospect, I think I have, to, I have to attribute much of those benefits to my equilibrium from Orosoma. So when you trust your intuition while selecting the equilibrium bottles and applying them regularly, I haven't been applying this regularly enough, probably need a refill. They have the capacity to support you to a deeper consciousness and promote your total well-being. So desire to be brilliant, to be joyous, to be creative, to be happy, to be you. A system of color, plant, and crystal energies that help you become the very best version of yourself using the highest quality organic biodynamic and wild crafted ingredients, right? I got all this in a bottle because it harnesses the vibrational powers of mother nature, right? Orosome equilibrium bottles, are a system of color, plant and crystal energies that bring you closer to self-understanding. So it's activated when you apply it to the body and its vibrational energy can be accessed through the ingredients in each equilibrium bottle. The alchemy is in your hands. Right? I got alchemy in my hands. And the unique energy in each equilibrium bottle is unlocked when it touches your skin. So let me let me just give this a scientific test here. Oh wow. 
Oh, this stuff really works, guys. This stuff really, really works. This is fair dinkum. It, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was told to put it, I think, on my forehead and on the back of my neck. I remember with the women, like, best way to seduce them was to, God forbid, to kiss the back of their neck. Because we have, we have more bones connecting with bones, more joints in the neck than anywhere else in the body. So the neck is super sensitive. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. I'm starting to feel my chakras opening up. You notice my aura changing color right now? So th this is created to correspond with the seven chakra centers in, in your body that energy flows through. And, and equilibrium brings ease, balance, and calm to your energetic system. I mean, who would not want these these benefits, right? At the same time, and that's not all. That's not all. Like, Diana, it would have been enough for me to get, like, my, my money's worth $50 bottle if all this did was bring ease, balance, and calm to my energetic system. Diana, it also strengthens and protects the aura to empower you and elevate your consciousness, So to stand in front of the various color combinations contained within the equilibrium bottles and select those which you feel drawn to most, that's the first step, guys. Right? The colors draw you in because the colors, you are drawn to the colors you need and that you can then activate the vibrational energy of the ingredients in each equilibrium by shaking the bottle and applying it to the body. So the alchemy is in your hands. The unique energy in each equilibrium bottle is unlocked when it touches your skin. Thank God for Orosoma. Just changed my life. Orosoma made me the man I am today. The method, the, the process that they're using in this movie is more on the face of it what it says it is, forcing an interpersonal connection, right? So it is simply yeah. saying, now you tell me some vulnerable shit. No, I'm going to ask you again. I'm going to ask you again. There's no pretense that there is like a, because I think psychics do the same thing, right? They forge this connection, which is pseudo. It's Hold on. false, falsely. Yeah. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Guys, this, I formed a genuine connection with my psychic so much. She like built me for about $900. And I did get one unsolicited email from Dennis Prager out of it. So it was totally worth it. <laughs> I mean, if one chooses to ignore the thousands of years of evidence. But this one, it's it's more laid bare. I don't think this is good therapeutic practice by any means. But I do think that it, I guess I would call it like a, Ice breaking exercise on steroids, yeah. right? You know, yeah. forcing. And, and, and let me add to that that it's all well and good to say there. You know, I'm sure there is. It's true. That and guys, for the next for the next five days only, if you put in the promo code forty, you will get fifteen percent off your orosoma. There are better ways to make this kind of connection that don't involve a lot of this spooky shit, but that isn't. Each and every one of these bottles has the power of the Lord Jesus in it, in seriously holy colored water. Before long, Luke will be doing chaos magic rituals on stream. This product reminds me of religion. Being an antisocial schizoid is the fundamental characteristic of the alt-right. Premier code, blinding white teeth. Yeah, it's fake, but it works. Forty, you do much better with a guest host. Agreed. It's Forty drinking cologne again. It's not cologne. It's Orosoma, bro. It's got natural plant and crystal energies. 
Luke is turning into a giga chad right before our eyes. Doesn't have modafinil in it. It's BS. <laughs> My sister would love this stuff. So is women too that buy into spirituality and quack got quack therapy disavow. Now you really need that snake energy, the the kundalini. Have you guys activated your kundalini lately? Michael Anton Curtis Yavin equally unimpressive in their debate. <laughs> I can imagine. Cognitive behavioral therapy and antidepressants would help the vast majority of people, but most people are too self-obsessed and not reflective to follow the advice of doctors. Kyle versus the world with some good streaming content. I agree. Defend the Constitution, it defends you. happening to freddie quell right? right like so this is what he has this is what's on offer for a lot of these people it's that or nothing and so they get that and that is really important it's not like the other option that the movie seems to lay out is tell me what this thing is that right this is so important when people denigrate say the community created on line or community created on a youtube live stream you have to evaluate everything compared to what? Okay, so like getting married and having kids is obviously going to usually be much more fulfilling and better for you than spending your life on live streams. But that's not usually the thing that people are weighing up. People are weighing up being on a live stream versus gaming. And so being part of a YouTube live stream community may be better for you in some instances for some streams than gaming. Or people may be going out to play golf. So sometimes it's probably better to go out and play golf than participate in a live stream. Other times participating in a live stream. And there's real life community being created here. Like people have employed each other from this channel. People have gone to bed with each other from this channel. People have built real world friendships. People have built businesses. Uh, people are building a hedge fund from, from with other people that they've met on this show. So we're small, but we're powerful. Looks obviously like a vagina. Yeah, um, like, right, exactly. The, that's the <laughs> no, other exactly. option that yeah. they have yeah. is, yeah. is that. And the back to the discussion of whether or not Philip Seymour Hoffman was trying to sick his dog, whether he was trying to do this or not. I actually read these interactions at, as reflecting something different. I don't think that he really wanted Joaquin Phoenix, Freddie, to go kick ass. I think that what is seeming like indecision is that throughout this whole movie, I think he's trying to figure out why he likes Freddy. And I think one of the things is that this guy has, his impulsiveness is something that Dodd doesn't have and that he kind of likes. I think mm -hmm. his lust for life is too positive, but the whole thing that he's calling humans animalistic, right? He hates the fart, but he laughs at it. And he ends up concluding that laughter is really important about, right? But I think he is stuck in believing that we should rise above our animal nature, but yeah. there is something that is so appealing about Freddy's animalistic nature that he's attracted to. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally true. At several points in the movie, they, they yeah. really emphasize the animal nature yeah. of, of Freddy. And I think he can't even tell whether or not he wants Freddy sexually. Yeah. I think he, I, it's unclear. Yeah. But, but I think you're right. It's interesting Like the self-concept of Dodd is that, and this is aligns perfectly with Scientology is that idea of, ascending to this sort of spiritual 
realm that is and completely divorced from your animal nature. But like I was saying, I just picked up lots of hints that he wasn't happy. Absolutely. He was, the, he's miserable. But I think Freddie is showing totally. him that he's miserable about something. That yeah. He's yeah. given up this part of life. Yeah. And, and kind of the only times you see him laugh. Mm. So all sorts of people are back on Twitter. All right. So Elon Musk appearing poised to take over Twitter has had many beneficial effects already. So I noticed there's already free speech. You can, I believe you can, you can challenge the validity of the 2020 election, which I do not agree with, but I agree with the freedom to be able to do that. And Mike Lindell, the, the, my pillow guy built a billion dollar business. So on the one hand, Mike Lindell has often shown himself to be a buffoon. On the other hand, he's built a billion dollar business. He's not just a buffoon, right? People are not just the, the worst aspect of themselves. Yeah. That line that he says at the end where Freddie is leaving him and he says, if you figure out a way to live without serving a master or any master, then let the rest of us know for you'd be the first, you know, something like that. That's a good point. If you found a way to live without serving a master. So all men are slaves, all right? Uh, virtuous men are slaves to virtue and uh, bad men are slaves to their appetites. But uh, most people need a master. I think that's that's profound like that like i think he sees in freddie something that even though he's a completely broken aimless soul like he sees in him you can actually live in this way where you're not beholden to some source of meaning mm -hmm. and so i have a rule when it comes to dating i will not date any woman who is worse than me at reading social cues so pretty much everyone, every girlfriend I've ever had has been better than me except one. Okay, so that, that, was, that was a big warning sign. Uh, she would carry her, her, her laptop into, into shul uh, on, on Shabbat because she didn't want it stolen from her car. Uh, she worked at a public radio station, and so she would say to my friends, oh, we're having a fundraising drive, you know, please call in and contribute. I was like, Argh! like many, many embarrassing things. And uh, she was at this table where, where the rabbi, I wasn't there, the rabbi was hosting a, a Shabbat lunch. And he said, you know, a lot of great people in this community, but there's one person you have to watch out for, Luke Ford. And, and my, my ex-girlfriend st stood up for me. She said, well, he's okay when he's on his lithium, but he's too vain to take his lithium every day. So then he goes a little nuts. So that's Christine, Christine Palmer. She died about uh, 14 months ago, unexpectedly, just like some kind of brain brain aneurysm. So we were together from 2007 to 2008. That is appealing to him because yeah. he doesn't, he also feels lost too. Yeah. I was just going to say, just to extend on that. So Dodd is kind of the leader of the cult, right? He's the master. But he's or kind of is he? <laughs> he I know this is, this is where I'm going. Like it's full of schemes and organizations and boats, and then they move to to London and they're going to set up things there. And you can just sort of you get a sense of all of the sort of Freudian ego type strategizing that sort of dominates every little thing that they do. And his wife is the full on believer and a powerful character. And in a way, he's like the tail's wagging the dog. He's a little bit of a, a prisoner of this construct that he's created. There wasn't 
element in the character of, of Freddy I find interesting was that he, while he was presented, you know, this kind of animalistic force, right? Like when you saw from his perspective, it took me quite a while to work out that's what's happening when you saw suddenly all the women being naked in one scene. I actually thought for a while, we <laughs> so is this showing like Dodd commanded all women to become naked. Oh, yeah, but... it was confusing. Yeah. I, I watched that scene three times. <laughs> yeah, just that. Or, or yeah. more, yeah. yeah. Not for the boobs, but, you know. Is there, like, but... an accepted interpretation? My interpretation is it's clearly from his perspective, and he's a yeah. man. Yeah. Right. Okay, anyway, with uh, Christine Palmer and some other women that uh, I, I've dated, obviously the, the same women were going to date me. But uh, I, I noticed with her that she'd been in all these feuds, which, which even at my, my low level of mental health and recovery, I recognize this is not a good sign uh, that, that uh, she'd been in these very intense feuds. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a giveaway that you're, you're with someone who's dangerous, right? If they have a large number of crazy people in their past, right? if they're, they're telling you about all these crazy people, like these jealous people, these bipolar people, these alcoholic people, all right? Uh, all right, someone who's in all these nasty feuds and someone who's had a lot of crazy people in their past, all right, they're going to smear you the same way to the next target. That's the big warning sign, right? You don't want to be with someone who's in a lot of feuds, uh, someone who provokes jealousy and rivalries while maintaining their cover of innocence. They once directed all their attention to you, which makes it confusing when they withdraw their attention and focus on others. Idealizing you, love bombing you, and flattering you right? When you first meet, things go extremely fast. They tell you how much they have in common with you, how perfect you are for them. So like a chameleon, they mirror your hopes and dreams and insecurities to form an immediate bond of trust and excitement. They constantly initiate communication, seem to be fascinated with you on every level. And if you have a Facebook page, they might plaster it with songs, compliments, poems, and inside jokes. That's a terrific sign that you're dealing with a psychopath. Compares you to everyone else in their life. They compare you to ex-lovers, friends, family members, and your eventual replacement. So when they're idealizing you, they make you feel special by telling you how much better you are than these other people. And then when they're devaluing you, they use these comparisons to make you feel jealous and inferior. Another sign that you're dealing with a psychopath, the qualities they once claimed to admire in you suddenly become glaring faults. So at first they appeal to your deepest vanities and vulnerabilities. They observe and mimic exactly what they think you want to hear. But after you're hooked, they start using these things against you and you spent more and more time trying to prove yourself worthy to the very person who said you were great. Then cracks in their mask. There are fleeting moments when the charming, cute, innocent persona is replaced by something else entirely. You see a side of them that never came out during the idealization phase. There's a side that is cold, inconsiderate, and manipulative. Start to notice their personality just does not add up, that the person you fell in love with doesn't actually seem to exist. Another sign you're dealing with a psychopath, they are easily bored. Right? They're constantly surrounded by other people, stimulated and praised at all times. They can't tolerate being alone for an extended period of time. They become quickly uninterested by anything that doesn't directly impact them in a positive or thrilling way. First, you might think they're exciting and worldly and you feel inferior for preferring familiarity and consistency. Yeah. I think the camera work is what gives us that. I yeah. think that the director is trying to tell us that, but there yeah. is something I want to talk about that scene when Chris is done. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that scene, various other ones like are presenting the parallel and the imagery of like, he's an animal, he's a dog. That's very clear. But there's also this like 
weird part and and I liked it because it reminded me of this short story I heard when I was at school in in Northern Ireland called the Potsheen Maker. I'm the host Christine Palma. Tonight we have people here at the radio station. Check it out. But that's not the that's not the right link. So this is this is my ex. Just uh, I was wondering why she wasn't responding to my emails. And uh, I googled her and found out that she she died. You're listening to KXLU so Los Angeles. She was public affairs director at the Loyola Marymount uh, radio station for about 15 years. 88.9 FM, and the program is Echo in the Sense. I'm the host, Christine Palma. Tonight, we have people here at the radio station. Check it out. If we whoa, 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 whoa. That's probably going to give me some copyright violation, so... Okay, we'll turn off the music. Right, the the people who brewed their home alcohol. And in that story, it was a, t- a school teacher, I think. I looked it up and it, it was like a short story from the 70s. But that skill he has, right, where he's, yes, he's making like these kind of potions out of deadly things like paint thinners and so on. But the camera work presents it as, in a sense, he has some sort of science or mechanical skill, like an artisan to make these drinks. And I can't remember how Dodd refers to them, but it had this nature that he has some part to him, which is uh, like proficient in a skill, albeit it's brewing alcohol. I totally agree. And remember, this is the thing that first attracts Dodd to him. On the one hand, he's obviously a bootlegger. We can read it straight that way. You know, he was his father's alcoholic and he learned this skill. But it's almost like he has this elixir of life that Dodd wants in on. And when he asks him how he does it, he won't tell him. Yeah, so it's almost yeah. like a, a wizard or a shaman. He's able to craft this elixir. And that's what draws him in. Like he sees, along with everything else, he sees that Freddie has something that he wants, that he's denied himself for so long. And vice versa. Yeah. Well, and I think that this is Amy Adams, Peggy Dodd is one of the things that she first asked him is to stop boozing. You know, you can read this as stop your magic, the magic that you have on my husband. And which gets me to that scene, that scene. If you look at Amy Adams in that Mm. scene, I think it's the most. So I've tended to have relationships with two types of women. One, the Christine Palmer type who is incredibly loving, right? She's just a very loving, nurturing woman, but chaotic, right? Just uh, had a hard time being on time and, doing the things that adults do. And then I have relationships with women who are organized and and successful, but they then become (laughs) filled with contempt for me. This brilliant piece of acting in the whole film is you're distracted by these naked women. I think you're seeing it from the perspective of Freddie. You see Amy Adams catch the camera so we can see it's Freddie. And she does this thing where she knows she was so cute. All right. And then after we broke up, she got on various medications and just bloated up. Uh, but until about 2008, she was just such a cutie. And then the, then the medications caused her to gain about 20 pounds. Notices the way that Freddie is looking, but then she looks up at Dodd. And then looks right back at Freddie as if to notice that there's something going on Mm. in that dynamic. 
And then that's where right after she goes and jerks him off and she says, you could do whatever you want, but not this. Think that there's an illusion yeah, there yeah, to that yeah. chemistry. Nobody that other people I know. Yeah. Know. Yeah. So that that's yeah. in Matt and I were actually talking about it. And I think there is in lots of the things, there's ambiguity, right? Because it's, it's not explicit. So when I was taking Alexander Technique lessons, I, I bought three lessons for friends and two of my friends like made an appointment showed up uh christine uh, typically for her she didn't get the appointment date right so she she burned it because you know i bought an appointment for her she didn't show up so it was a it was a waste of a hundred dollars that's it that it's referencing like homosexual urges it could not be at just all. right not at but all it, yeah. it could be three different things at the same time right yeah like, yeah but did you guys read it that there was like a homoerotic going both ways or one way or how did you read that relationship? I read it less like that, even though like it, it's almost begging you to interpret that way. I, I read it more as a father son kind of relationship. And well, that's not inconsistent. <laughs> no, I guess. Oedipus. Well, I don't know what kind of like family you grew up in. <laughs> <laughs> it was only Oedipus his was just <laughs> interested in his mom. He killed his dad. He was only fucking his aunt. But I guess my point is like, I think that's the thing that it seems like Joaquin Phoenix or, or, or Freddie is hungering for, but at the same time can't commit to so I, I didn't come down on the clearly this is two men that are trying to get with each other, but can't bring themselves to admit that. But I So I met her at the L.A. Press Club in 2007, and uh, she told me she was working on a book about uh, robots. And she was volunteering at the L.A. Press Club, and she was also sleeping there. And and so it was so incredibly exciting those first few weeks because I was able to like, bring her into my life. There aren't many women who I could bring into my life, my world, my apartment, and it would be a step up for them. But my apartment was a better place for her than sleeping in her car or sleeping in the L.A. press club. And I got intoxicated by like taking care of her and taking her out to eat and, and you know, putting her up at my place. And she was incredibly flexible. She'd you know, go along with pretty much anything. I wanted to do because I guess she was in, in a bad place being semi-homeless, sleeping in the car or sleeping at the LA press club. And that was so intoxicating for the first few weeks. And then it quickly started to feel like a millstone around my neck. So I guess the, I learned in, in one of my 12 step programs that the desire to rescue or the desire to be rescued you know, comes from a similar dysfunctional place. So for the first two months, it was, incredibly exciting to rescue her and then for the next 10 months it just felt like a millstone around my neck and what sustained the relationship for the last six months is that we took up playing chess so she was a very aggressive assertive uh, chess player and i would go to the library and read all these books on chess so that i could i could beat her so when we when we tired of having sex we really got into the chess and our last week together i took off we went on a, on a car trip. We went, uh, drove the, the one freeway up to San Francisco, went up to Coos Bay in Oregon. Then I took her back to the Napa Valley with, to Pacific Union College, spent a Shabbat at Pacific Union College, just uh, rocked up to the home of my former Sabbath school teacher, like late at Friday night, said, hey, can we, can we crash? 
then we went to Yosemite for a couple of days. Uh, then, then we drove home. And the next day I went to a talk at UCLA and, and met someone else and uh, broke up with Christine. Could see that reading too. Now, I'm with you, Tamla, and, and I don't think it's very important whether or not there's some sort of physical right. thing going yeah. on there. Because what's clear is that his wife doesn't approve of him and other people in the movement don't approve of the presence of this guy. And it, it's Lancaster Dodd who wants him there and appreciates him. And his wife in particular is... And a question from Josh Randall. Do I support men going their own way? So in some instances, yeah. Generally speaking, no. Right? Generally speaking... You're better off with a woman in your life, but you're not better off with a toxic woman in your life. So in 80% of cases for men, no. But probably in a small small percentage of cases, men are better off. But no, overall, going your own way w without women, I think, is a bad idea. It's kind of jealous. Nothing to do with physicality at all. I mean... <laughs> This is the contradiction, right? He's meant to be the cult leader and Freddie's meant to be the, the one that's sort of fallen into it and is the loyal dog. But like he's too sociopathic or something to actually really care that much. He's a little touched. And about the men's rights movement uh, seems to do some good things. So I think from what I've seen of it, I'm generally favorably disposed towards MRA, the men's rights activists. But you can take anything too far. As they say in the South. He's like yeah. not all there, right? Not all there, yeah. So it's actually the the master that has this strong thing for Freddie, and Freddie's more casual about it. And so Freddie leaves, right? On the motorcycle, he just just burns yeah. off, and it's like it's hard to understand for a little while. And yeah. then it's Lancaster Dodd at the very end who sort of begs Freddie to come back. And really, the, at the very final scene, he's telling Freddie basically just don't leave. You have to stay. If you leave again, then I can't him. Don't come back. So, yeah. yeah. He's conflicted. And I also read that as sort of him. You see when he's driving off in the distance. So Christine's the only girlfriend I've ever had who I found myself yelling at. I, I didn't do that with any other girlfriend. So sometimes a combination of two people can become a, a negative thing for both of them. And so... With, with other girlfriends, they would not have put up with it. They would have said, hey, stop being a jerk. And I would have recognized that they were right. But Christine was so nice and so sweet. And whatever, I just found myself yelling at her you know, way too much. I'm, you know, I don't like that side of myself. I'm embarrassed by my behavior. Wow. I, I gave her the nickname Fats when she started gaining weight. And yeah, n not very nice of me. So... This, this combination started bringing out a really dark side of me. He's sort of cheering for him to leave, yeah. but not, but he also wants him. He said he's driving uh, fast, like good for him. Yeah, good boy. Yeah. yeah um, boy. And you'll see, I agree absolutely, um, Matt, that it's not even important really for the movie. What's important is that there is some sort of dynamic there that's intriguing. If you see right before the scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman is dancing and singing, he is, the scene right before that is he's telling the audience that he's in love. And you'll see Joaquin Phoenix looks embarrassed. Like he has this sort of look as if he thinks he might be talking. I remember I, I was driving in traffic and I started yelling at another driver when Christine was in the car. I started yelling at the other driver and said, I think I yelled out like, hey, fats, get out of the way. 
And like Christine said, wait, I thought that was my special name. And so she was annoyed and upset that I was taking her special name and, and applying it to others. So that's a big no-no I've learned with women. <laughs> you need to need to have that, that special name, special connection with them that you don't share with anyone else. So a lot of the women I've dated say, oh, look, you, you share so much of yourself online. Like what's going to be left that's going to be special and unique just to us? Talking about him. And maybe this is me imputing something on it, but I think there's a reason for him giving that look. On the face of it, he's talking about his wife. But I think this is ties into the whole, she's jealous, she might not know what. And in this era, maybe any homosexual feelings were so repressed that not even they themselves know what's going on between the two men. They mm. might not even realize what's going on. But And he, and he didn't seem in love with Amy ever. No. No. Yeah. No. So I met uh, Christine at the LA press club and then got, got her phone number. And like, we spoke for like two hours the first night. I think I, I met her on a Wednesday night, talked to her for about two hours, Thursday night. And then Friday night, I wanted to meet up with her and, and, or I wanted to take her out and all the options didn't work for her except to meet at Friday night live at Temple Sinai. So the first time we went out was for this Friday night, service at uh, Sinai Temple in Westwood. She wanted to go there. And so I never asked her to convert to Judaism. I was thinking this was just going to be kind of a temporary fling, but she took it on herself to convert to Judaism. I was like, would take her to my Orthodox synagogue. And uh, we were a very liberal Orthodox synagogue. And so she said she was interested in Orthodox Judaism. But uh, when she went to convert, she, she did it on her own. So she went to the University of Judaism, which is conservative. So their conversions are not accepted by the Orthodox. And she didn't consult with me. She just went off and did that. And then I wanted to be supportive. So I, I, she asked me to come along to the classes and to a special Shabbat weekend. But uh, she came up fairly near to the end of, of her conversion to conservative Judaism. And then she said, ah, oh, it doesn't really count with the Orthodox. So yeah, for 24 years, she did a weekly radio program at KXLU. And so she abandoned her conservative Judaism and then started with an Orthodox conversion. And she loved uh, Young Israel Century City, loved that synagogue. And then eventually, she, after we broke up, she, she kept going with her Orthodox conversion for a while, but then eventually gave it up. Uh, she was discouraged when, when her sponsoring rabbi said... Uh, Look, I'm only going to sponsor you if you go go get therapy. I, I think that the rabbi saw that she was, you know, driving around with all this stuff in her car and picked up some of the dysfunction, and so Christine took uh, took great exception to that. So when he's saying that, that is a fair yeah. In, yeah, uh, right. way. But when he says that, that, he says, "I'm in love. I'm in love. We've all been in love." But he says it in again this yeah. kind of hollow yeah. tone. <laughs> yeah, but, um, it was very much like a pat. He's a pastor. And Alexander says, "Men going their own way seems like a cope for rejected men." Yes, I certainly don't think this is this is the way to go for most men. Right? We're built to be paired up with a woman. Now you don't want to get paired up with a woman who's horrible for you or bad for you, right? Bad people make you feel bad. Good people make you feel good. At that point. The only thing I wanted to say related to Dave's point was that the 
something that supports that reading, Dave, is that the indulgence that he later shows Freddie when everybody else is like, this guy's no good, he's dangerous. I think he's a CIA informant. And you get to see the frustration of them trying to make him better. But it is very much like Dodd says, okay, I take all of those things, but he still sees something in Freddie, right? So I, I think that kind yeah. of fits with that reading that he has some devotion to him that the others yeah. don't, whether it's love or not. So that's all. Then they wrestle on the front lawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of one of the only times you see Dodd being like happy. Exactly. Know? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Who do you think this is more about? between the two of them, because in some ways, I think you're tempted to see this about, to focus on Dodd, but it's in a lot of ways, a movie about Freddie Quell and more broadly speaking, the kind of person that might be drawn to this kind of community. Uh, Glib Medley notes, Luke has an easy time separating people into good and bad. Yes, I have a personality tendency common among narcissists of very easily idealizing and devaluing people. So pretty much all narcissists tend to do this. Because it's also an interesting mission. He can't hold a job. He can't stick to anything. But he does stick with them for much longer than we see him capable of, of sticking to anything else. So what is it about him and his experience that draws him to this, yeah, these Well, people. actually, i got to dispute your premise there because I don't think he is that drawn to them. He fell into them. He boarded the boat on a whim. He sort of gets kicked out in his uns. So we're talking about the Paul Thomas Anderson 2012 movie, The Master, which is thinly veiled portrayal of the Scientology story. So one of the best books I've read on toxic people is Jordan McKenzie, Psychopath Free. So here are some of the traits of the psychopath. They're into triangulation. They surround themselves with former lovers, potential mates, anyone else who provides them with added attention. This includes people that the psychopath may have previously denounced and declared you superior to. So this makes you feel confused, creates the perception the psychopath is in high demand at all times. Covert abuse. From an early age, most of us were taught to identify physical mistreatment and blatant verbal insults. But with psychopaths, the abuse is not so obvious. You won't even understand that you're in an abusive relationship until long after it's over. Through personalized idealization and subtle devaluation, a psychopath can effectively erode the identity of any chosen target. So I noticed with many of the women I, I dated, they wanted more effort from me. They, they wanted me to actively get involved in solving their problems. So when I dated a woman and found out she was in these feuds with her roommates, with her neighbors, that her, her you know, neighbor had put a a nail in her attire and, and these women wanted me to go you know take charge of this situation and my response usually was i wanted to run away from such women so through personalized idealization subtle devaluation the psychopath erodes the identity of any chosen target from an outside perspective you will appear to have lost it while the psychopath calmly walks away completely unscathed psychopath goes for pity plays and sympathy stories their bad behavior always has sob story roots they claim to behave this way because of an abusive ex an abusive parent an abusive cat they say that all they've ever wanted is some peace and quiet they say they hate drama yet there's more drama surrounding them than anyone you've ever known psychopaths go through the mean and sweet cycle sometimes they shower you with attention sometimes they ignore you sometimes they criticize you they treat you differently in public than they do behind closed doors they could be talking about marriage one day and breaking up the next you never know where you stand with them. 
they put forth as little effort as possible and then step it up when you try to disengage from them. Suitable for all these other contexts. And they feed him, they give him clothes, he gets to go to a party and drink. He says, everybody's very nice to me here. Like, oh, that's yeah. all. That's his, yeah. 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 So it's like, of course he's going to stay. He'll stay until they kick him out. It's just well, like he, he stayed in the situation. He doesn't just get kicked out. Like, in one case, he attacks a guy in a mall. Oh. Uh, and in another case, he... Well, there are uh, reasons killed. for getting kicked out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, like, he doesn't do things like that in the community. I I had a question related to that. Like, I just, I couldn't read it myself about the intention. The, like, two parts were, one, why he attacked the guy in the job when he was the photographer, why he started being aggressive to him. I thought, like, maybe something to do with commanders and war or something like that, maybe. But the second one was, oh God, it slipped my mind now. It'll come back. But there was a scene I couldn't interpret like, oh yeah, that's it. Where he gave the alcohol to the man, right? And you've seen before that he was talking with the man and he said, you look like my father. And then they start accusing him of poisoning him. And I thought that he had intentionally poisoned him, but Matt didn't read it like that. And I was kind of curious what, and question in the chat, anyone here done no calf? So I usually don't use caffeine. I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist where caffeine is a sin. And then over the past, past six years, seven years, I've used caffeine intermittently. So I would say 90% of the time I don't use caffeine. But then I love having it in the bullpen. All right, so I was up until 12.30 last night watching the end of Ozark. I probably should have used some caffeine this morning, but I love knowing that it's in the bullpen. So if I need to be functional or even more than functional, I can bring it in. It's going to have a dramatic effect on me because I usually don't touch it. You guys felt about that and also the, the scene where you attacked the guy because I didn't really understand why, except, you know, he's a weird guy. Yeah. Go ahead, I was just going to say, I didn't see that as intentional but maybe reckless what he did. And yeah, I think this is somebody who really just has trouble maintaining any kind of connection, even temporary of I'm going to take your picture for 10 minutes. Like he really can't do it. He also has clearly like sexual problems, impotence. That is something that is just a general part of his social dysfunction. And that's why I would say that I think even though he ends up leaving them multiple times, there is something about this community that I would say is distinct from when he tries to blend in with other areas of life. I have formulated a mini theory for your evaluation here in listening to what you guys are saying. One of the things that I think I read in a review was the connection with the, the theme of family in this movie. The old man that he kills or causes to die. Yeah, we tend to repeat our relationships with our family into our broader relationships. And so we get this template for how to relate to people from early on in childhood. And then we just tend to keep acting it out, acting it out. Back to this terrific book, Psychopath Free. Another sign that you're with a psychopath. This person becomes your entire life. Spending more of your time with them and their friends, less time with your own network. They are all you think about, all you talk about. You isolate yourself to make yourself more available for them. You cancel plans, eagerly await by the phone for the next communication. So the relationship 
involves many sacrifices on your end, few on theirs. Arrogance. Despite the humble, sweet image they present in the early stages, start to notice an unmistakable air of superiority about them. They talk down to you as if you're intellectually deficient and emotionally unstable. They have no shame when it comes to flaunting new targets after the breakup, ensuring that you see how happy they are without you. Another thing I remember about Christine, she hated it when she'd ask me a question and I would respond with Google it. In fact, every woman I have known has hated it when I responded to their questions with Google it. On the other hand, I don't want to enable, you know, pathetic behavior. Like you shouldn't ask people questions that you can figure out on your own. 29, sign number 29, backstabbing gossip that changes on a whim. They plant little seeds of poison, whisper about everyone, idealize them to their face, and then complain about them behind their backs. Find yourself disliking or resenting people you've never met. Might even feel special for being the only one that he, she complains to. Once the relationship turns sour, they'll run back to everyone they once insulted to you, lamenting about how crazy you've become. And next one, your feelings. Your natural love and compassion has transformed into overwhelming panic and anxiety. You apologize and cry more than you ever have in your life. You barely sleep. You wake up every morning feeling anxious and unhinged. You have no idea what happened to your old relaxed, fun, easygoing self. After a run-in with a psychopath, you will feel insane, exhausted, drained, shocked, and empty. You tear apart your entire life, spending money, ending friendships, searching for some sort of reason behind it all. From the terrific book, Psychopath Free. He says, you're like my father. You remind me of my father, right? And then that guy dies. The man in the mall is, you know, he's asking him if he's a family man. And uh, Roger says, what if coffee and cigarettes are your only hope? Then if uh, coffee and cigarettes are your only hope, then you're probably best uh, clinging to them until you build other hopes in your life. Now, if porn is your only hope, then... I think, generally speaking, you'd be better off quitting porn and going through the bleakness and the emptiness and the despair and then finding your way out to to a better life. And uh, with all these things, a good 12-step program, I have found the most effective because you go into a 12-step program, you meet people, you get a community, you make friends, you can identify with other people there. They can understand you better often than your own family. So it's easier and quicker to form bonds. You get opportunities to contribute to a community, to volunteer in small ways, such as setting up chairs or making the coffee. You can go outside the meeting and smoke cigarettes with people. And you can get a sponsor and you can go through intense personal change. But most important, you get that human connection. And 12-step meetings are all about sharing stories that you can resonate with and relate to to varying degrees. And if he's there for his wife and he attacks him, I think he's looking for and unable to find a father figure because he's so destructive. And note, the father that he was trying out, he killed. It seems as if Dodd is taking the elixir and surviving, not dying. He has shown that he's going to take on that role. And I think that one of the reasons he leaves is as he has adopted this surrogate family in a way that it doesn't seem he ever had one. And he plays out an adolescence. And, you know, at the end of adolescence, as anthropologists will tell us, we leave, right? Like that's, he's actually leaving of his own accord for the first fucking time in his life, right? He's not getting shipped off to war. He's not getting run out of the cabbage farm for killing He's not getting kicked out of the department store. Holy I think shit. he's I, finally found a surrogate yeah, I, father. 
I like the movie now. <laughs> yeah, Dave pretends to be a Philistine, but he actually has some insightful like film analysis. I was, I was sitting there going, oh, but you know. <laughs> so the time that he he actually goes back to the girl's house, the girl that he left. So I've been going to a lot of uh, singles events recently, and I noticed that the the men who are most successful are those who are playful, right? Those who are outgoing. There is such a thing as a more socially effective personality. If you are shy, if you are withdrawn, if you are awkward, if you're lacking in confidence, obviously you're neither going to do particularly well meeting women, but you're also not going to do very well in life in general, right? The socially effective personality is more outgoing than introverted, is more conscientious, is more agreeable than disagreeable, is low in neuroticism, and has above average levels of openness to new experience. So when I, I was when I'm dating someone, I want someone who's reasonably open to doing something new. Right? It's not a lot of fun trying to date and relate to someone who's closed off. Left and you know unsuccessfully reconnects with her. That's kind of what a young adult does after they leave home, right? Yeah, it's actually ready exactly. to say, yeah. Okay. And when he starts yeah. to do the processing at the end in the like sexing right where he's trying to, to get the woman to do the yeah. processing but that fits that's kind of what you're saying very that he's bizarre now right? yeah become he's now the, he's now the he's father the master. yeah, yeah but you don't master. feel hopeful. he's the master of that pussy <laughs> yeah and you, it, it's not good i agree Tamla. it wasn't like oh he's but, mastered this <laughs> do you get the sense that he's finally able to have sex in that scene i think so right well, I, I hadn't tweaked about the impotence, but yeah, what's right. the impotence? But, where where but, but, are you but, getting the impotence? Well, well, just like he always is like with the girl at the department store and he kind of falls asleep when they're going out to eat. And then he has these like kind of pre-sex things where he's like, let's fuck to the mm. hot transcribers who are. Right. But th we never actually see him able to take any of those yeah. to yeah, right. completion. To support yeah. that demo, it does slip out during yeah, the. Yeah, but he says put it back in, which means that it can. <laughs> I remember my first time with this woman and. Uh, I was not as young as I used to be, and I got a little nervous, and and uh, she was on top, and then, uh, what can I say? I, I, I didn't, I, I did not equip myself well, and afterwards, this, this like, beautiful woman said, I've never had that happen to me before. Ah, uh, not, not a, not a triumph. So... Richard Spencer tweets, Trump returning to Twitter is just a matter of time. The entire business model of alt tech, parlor, gab, truth, getter is conservatives are getting censored. One motivation for Elon Musk to post cringe conservative memes, memes is to cut off the possibility of niche alt tech rising and succeeding. Well, alt tech is arising and succeeding with things like Rumble and things like Odyssey. And Vitalik Buterin tweets, the largest consequence of Elon taking over Twitter May well be not any specific policy decision he makes, but rather the morale effect of his supporters feeling emboldened and his detractors feeling like they are arguing on enemy territory. This is happening already. That's, that's a great point. I mean, think of just the, the morale boost 
the people got seeing Donald Trump come out of nowhere, mount a hostile takeover of the Republican Party, and then mount a successful hostile takeover of the American political system. <laughs> the, the we don't know if it was successfully. We need a close-up to, to, to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. But you're right, Tamler, that he has presects, and whether or not he, he's a stud at the end there, it is the first time we see him really do it. Yeah. And it, in some, you know, and he's lumbering at waiting. it and his, yeah, his <laughs> yeah. processing sucks, right? His idea of processing is like a real stripped out. He's not really doing it right, but he is finally like his own. Yeah. I, I, I also, it's really irrelevant mine. <laughs> it's so irrelevant, but I'm, I gotta mention it anyway, that, you know, the stuff you were talking about, the techniques that, that they kind of work, right? That they break down. Even if it isn't, it's better than the fucking inkblot Rorschach uh, test. I also took that as an indictment of those techniques because it seemed to me to be saying that, yes, these do work, but like getting people to sit opposite each other. So it's like the pickup artist community. So to, to a certain degree, many guys will benefit from learning how to be more outgoing and more playful with women. But when it crosses a certain point, it it encourages like these antisocial, you know, women hating, uh, destructive downward spirals that just take over your life. So there are a lot of things a little bit can be good. So my Alexander Technique teacher, Julia Corder, she was also Neil Strauss's Alexander Technique teacher. And she would go to many of Neil Strauss's seminars and talk about the Alexander Technique. That's how I heard about the Alexander Technique. I heard it was good for posture and for the voice. I knew I needed help with both. And the the Neil Strauss book, The Game, said, you know, women like guys with good posture. So I thought, oh, I, I need to have better posture and learn the Alexander Technique. So Ju Julia would go along to some of Neil Strauss's seminars. So yeah, a little bit of some things makes can make a dramatic improvement in your life but uh too much and too much of anything becomes toxic you can drink too much water obviously Catherine d tweets on twitter tweets we hear a lot about the social mobility in america with the focus usually on the comparative ease of moving up less discussed is how easy it is to go down i think that the downward fall is going to be very fast not just for us as individuals but for the entire preppy class and mesure responds preppy is a fashion and a cargo cargo court to a class is a result of the pervasive notion in america that you are what you wear and that you should fake it till you make it and stare at each other and that scene where they're they're supposed to tell truths to each other these are yeah. all things i don't know if scientologists specifically do this i think they do but like they're they're associated with cult movements right they have these techniques that force intimacy and that it works. It really works because, like, they've, <laughs> Pamela, they've done psychology studies where people have ticked Likert boxes where if you force people to reveal <laughs> secrets, intimate secrets, afterwards they feel more, you know, like close, like, it, because that's what humans do when they become close to someone, they reveal information. So if you artificially create that, and I felt the movie was saying that these guys are good at doing that. They un intuitively or not, they understand how these manipulative things work and they're using them uh, to draw people in. This could be me yeah. layering my own. Int okay, breaking news. We have the first Muslim religious woman 
appearing on the cover of Playboy. A scholarship opportunity. So, come on, here we go. I want to hear what she has to say. So, if you or someone you know is in college, keep listening, or just keep listening because I have some things to share with you. I have really been on the journey these days, really getting intimate with my own story and who I've come from. My great grandmother, who I knew was one of the wisest women to walk the earth, wasn't able to read. My grandmother, who's one of my best friends, wasn't able to finish her formal education, but got the education of the world. My mom, who went to college, got her master's and runs a nonprofit, was the same person to take me to my writing and reading camps and helped me in my pursuit of being a storyteller. And so that gets me thinking about who comes after me and who comes after us. One of my friends recently said something about us being other people's ancestors and that just stuck with me because we are going to be other people's ancestors at some point and we do have to think about writing their future. So that brings me to this incredible initiative, the Write Her Future program. Lancome and the NAACP have partnered to grant 30 $10,000 scholarships to women of color who are currently pursuing their college education. I myself paid for all of my college and journalism education through scholarships and grants, and this is definitely one I would have applied for. So you can go on landcom.com. Okay, very inspiring. So here she is. Lovely, lovely Muslim lady. Beautiful. And she's got lots of press. There she is in Vogue. She's a journalist. Journalist Noor Toguri talks about compassionate storytelling, fighting stigma, and shining a light on the margins. I knew I was going to be a great journalist with the hijab on. So media wonderkin Noor Toguri makes a forceful case for modesty. So... Yeah, you, you don't you don't see that in in Playboy very much. So what the heck is happening here? Noor Taguri Playboy. I mean, please please be modest here. Okay. Very inspiring and empowering. So for any. Anyone with preconceived ideas about women who choose to wear a headscarf every day, Nurota Guri is disorienting. She's simply not what you expect. A 22-year-old journalist, she likes to call herself a storyteller on the verge of becoming this country's first hijab-wearing news anchor. She's an on-air reporter for Newsy, where she provokes the sort of confusion we could use right now by making a surprisingly bold case for modesty. As a badass activist with a passion for demanding change and asking the right questions, accompanied by beauty ad looks, Taguri forces us to ask ourselves why we have such a hard time wrapping our minds around a young woman who consciously covers her head and won't take no for an answer. Wait, so it's good that she won't take no for an answer? But when I don't, won't take no for an answer, like I get shot up with tear gas. Like I, I, I have 911 calls made on me. I, I get arrested by the police. Like I'm the bad guy because I won't take no for an answer but she's the good woman because she won't take no for an answer. That's sexism. That's sexism, plain and simple. This is why we need men's rights activists. Like she's being praised for never taking no for an answer. You know who also never took no for an answer? 
Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein never took no for an answer. Do, do we venerate Harvey Weinstein because he never took no for an answer? This is anti-Muslim, anti-male discrimination, and I won't stand for it. Interpretation on top. Well, no, I agree. Yeah, it's interesting because whether or not you call it manipulative has just simply to do with whether or not you find the ends appropriate, right? Because you're right, there is actually like in social psychologists in a relationship, they use this method to get two people in the lab to get to know each other really fast, right? It's like a whole technique where you divulge information to each other. It's well, and it works. And so the thing is, no, I don't think any of us here would disagree with the claim that cults are effective at giving people these tools to bond with other humans. I think what our judgment is about whether it's fake or not, it has more to do with whether or not we think that the goals of that bonding are manipulated rather than whether or not people have bonded. It's effective. Uh, and also, yeah. I think that there's a way to look at this and say, well, all this is doing is just normal intimacy and it would be much healthier for him to have this intimacy without all the bullshit. But clearly that's not in the cards for him. He has no opportunity to do that in a way that wouldn't involve the... Right. So what about men who use porn or who patronize prostitutes or strippers who otherwise would not get any from from a woman right what are men men who are so disfigured or so dysfunctional or so beaten down by life their only chance for female contact is to pay for it i mean i can't get on my high horse about them i think most men it would be better off not patronizing prostitutes but if that's the only way certain men can get female contact these kind of cult-like aspects so i think it's really asking the question of for people who are truly lost and aimless and who feel like their existence is kind of a joke, is this something that is actually helpful or beneficial for them in spite of the fact that there's all this metaphysics behind it that is crazy? Right. So during a particularly downtime in my life in 2009, when I was transitioning away from being a full-time writer and trying to recreate a new life, I joined up with a yoga studio. And it looks so slim, look, eat more, thank you. So during that downtime, I, I joined this Kundalini yoga studio, and you can find all sorts of arguments online why Kundalini yoga is, is a cult, why it's, it's bad for your health, why it's uh, bad for your social life, why... You know, it's wrecked various people's lives. And I would go to class and I couldn't do many of the positions because I was so lacking in flexibility. I would go to class and I wouldn't do many of the procedures because I couldn't do them without tensing and constraining my neck or ingraining like negative muscular hoarding patterns, which I was trying to release through my study of the Alexander technique. So I'd often go there and just kind of lie there in class and Many of the teachings didn't didn't make any sense to me, but I just like the ethos, man. I just like the the tea, the Kundalini tea. I just liked the environment. I just liked the people I met. It was it was my safe space. So you don't have to you, know, you don't have to believe in the message of a particular group to get some benefit from joining it. So I I I got a fantastic Jewish girlfriend from from 
joining this Kundalini yoga studio. I became friendly with this woman who became a conservative rabbi, who was a regular there. And she told me how she got her smika, her rabbinic ordination from, from two teachers, you know, one at uh, the University of Judaism, and then the other one was Guru Singh at uh, Kundalini Yoga. Like, is it still better than living this atomized life of bouncing from job to job and never being able to actually have sex, even when... I remember one time I was looking for a job and I accurately listed uh, 10... I listed jobs that I held over the previous 12 years. And I listed, even though I only had two primary employers over the past 12 years, I listed five different jobs on my resume. And when I sent the resume out, I got about a 10% response. So about 10% of the places that employers that I sent my resume out to, they responded. And then I got this flash insight. I should just list my two main employers. So I've had two, at the time I'd had two main employers for, for 12 years. I should just list them. And when I did that, I got a 50% response rate. Like people loved that I listed just two main employers because they're used to getting resumes from people who work a year here and a year there and 18 months here. And like, why would you invest in an employee when, when they're so transactional? Like I like having, you know, a long going relationship with a client or, or with an employer. And just, I just got a phenomenal response rate. I mean, people were like calling me up. People were pursuing me. People were praising me. It, it was amazing how that resonated with people that I wasn't just someone who bounced around. You know, I'm willing to make a commitment. You know, I'm willing to hang in there. All right. Uh, a job for me is, is largely about the relationships that you form with, with people there and that I would be a stayer, that, you know, I'd hang in there and that I, I'd look at this thing as going long term. And maybe the reason I left had, you know, was only about uh, the, the job was moving. To, to a place that wasn't convenient for me. And I just remember how much that resonated with employers. You know, it's this hot department store worker. How about Tamlo, that scene where he, uh, God tells him, no one else likes you, just me, right? Like, yeah, tell yeah I've had people say that to me. Or, you know, nobody else gets your sense of humor. I, I'm the only person. So I've often said something in front of a group, a crowd of, 10 people, 20 people, 50 people. And afterwards, one person would come up and say, you know, I really admired that joke. It was pretty risky. It was pretty edgy. Everyone else was offended. But uh, I was laughing inside. Did you read that as like he wanted to hurt him so that he was kind of saying, I'm the only one that recognizes you has merit? Because with my reading of that saying that, I keep feeling like I'm a Philistine, is that Freddie actually felt that he had connections with the other people in the group. And then Dodd cruelly told him, none uh. of that's real. I'm the only person that likes you. I'm the only reason you're there. And that felt to me like manipulative and cruel, even if it was true, because it felt like Freddie did feel that he was accepted by the other people. So yeah. I just check it. I'm, am I a piece of I think that, like, <laughs> it, I think it's true, but I think what he was saying isn't wrong. Those people were ready to throw him under the bus at the first opportunity. And never mind, like, the rest of the world that he's always running away from. So I think it's true, but I also think it was maybe a manipulative thing to say at uh, that moment. And, yeah, and I, I, no, I think he was just upset. You know what I mean? Like, 
Okay, let's get a little bit more here from Noor Taguri on misrepresentations of Muslims in the media. I called them terrorists. Everybody I knew, everybody I respected was calling them terrorists. And then I just kept thinking to myself, like, why does it feel wrong? It was because there's already a system in place of what we do with terrorists. And that system surveils and oppresses Muslim black, brown communities. Journalist Noor Taguri on Muslim Hey, everybody, I'm Brittany Jones Cooper, and today's guest is Noor Taguri, a journalist and producer whose commitment to storytelling has earned her international praise. I've been such a big fan of your work, so I've just been excited to sit and chat with you because you do talk about so many things that I'm also passionate about. Not only are you using social media to your benefit, but you created your own production company called mm-hmm. At Your Service. So, why was that an important part for you to tell the stories you wanted to tell? I always wanted to be a journalist, but I always struggled with how I was able to approach stories because I was often told that I had to be extra careful that my story wouldn't be. So generally speaking, Orthodox Jewish groups side with Muslims on uh, the protecting rights for wearing headscarves or protecting rights to go to a, a law court within within your own uh, religion. So sharia law essentially because traditional jews operate or are supposed to operate according to halakha jewish law so to then orthodox jewish groups generally support the right of, of muslims to operate sharia law courts and the like be biased it's impossible to be unbiased when you're wearing a headscarf they were consistently politicizing the hijab you know you don't say that about someone wearing a cross necklace and then i right think about all the porn stars who wear a cross necklace while they're getting pronged by 15 different parolees. Realized that my strength in my storytelling was who I was. It was my identity. Every person has a human experience, a human story. They have their own perspective, and that isn't a bad thing. It's a great thing. Right, because so often you can't control who tells your story, and people feel misrepresented in media. So the the headscarf, all right, that is more more jarring to to a Western sensibility even than the the much more limited hair covering that Orthodox Jewish women do. So the more you jar the sensibility, the, the more pushback you're going to get. So a, a headscarf like this is is you know more in your face, more more jarring than say wearing a yarmulke or just a head covering. Often. Or they are just straight up misrepresented. Like I have been misrepresented more times than I have been properly represented. I really believe that storytelling is a form of service. And so we wanted people to know, like, you can trust us and we're always at your service. I know President Biden recently lifted the Muslim ban, which many believe was rooted in xenophobia. You mentioned that you've received criticism for flying with a hijab. So can you just take me through the experience of traveling and again people not really realizing that people still have those stereotypes in place i just like kind of had to hack the process because i knew well why do people have stereotypes why do people have stereotypes about christians jews blacks muslims because of the behavior of some of the more extreme members of those groups so stereotypes is a heuristic it is an energy saving attention saving shorthand that uh, doesn't have to be 100% accurate to be useful. So if there are negative stereotypes about Muslims or about Jews or about blacks or about Christians, that's primarily because of the bad behavior of certain members of those groups.
At certain airports, I would have to come extra early because it was going to be harder. I just picked up on all of these things because I had traumatizing experiences where I would get randomly picked or whatever, and then in front of people get groped. We saw that video, like that viral video experiences. Wait, wait. So you're wearing, okay, come on now. You're wearing skin tight jeans and a head covering, and you're wanting to talk about modesty. You can't be a champion of modesty and be promoting yourself with these absolutely skin tight jeans. Right, that's being that's like being a convert to Orthodox Judaism who once directed a porn movie. I mean, come on. Where I would get randomly picked or whatever, and then in front of people get groped. We saw. Yeah, when you stand out and when you you represent a controversial in group, right? You're gonna pay a price for that. She doesn't have to wear the headscarf, right? She's choosing this more confrontational way to go through life, just like I choose that when I go through life with a yarmulke, and there's a price to pay, right? Choosing to do your own thing, right, is going to bring you into conflict with the wider community. All that video, like that viral video of the white guy who screamed getting off the plane and was like, I'm on the no-fly list, they're calling me a terrorist. They kicked me off the plane! They called me a terrorist! I didn't know that in my lifetime, I would see a white man go through fly list. They're calling okay, me a this terrorist. Is Nick they kicked me off the plane. They called me a terrorist. I didn't know that in my lifetime, I would see a white man go through what always happens to Muslims for no reason. It's just been interesting to see the media adjust that language finally. What happened at the Capitol? It is domestic terrorism, according to the definition. And I was mm-hmm. like, it doesn't really give me a good feeling to tell to call somebody else a terrorist because white supremacists will never be considered okay there was a terror aspect to what happened on january 6 but to call them terrorists i I don't think is fair because that wasn't primarily what was going on right They, they weren't just randomly killing people right there was a terror aspect so i can see why some would want to call them terrorists but terrorists are usually people we think of when you say terrorist, someone who blows up a plane, right? someone who goes into a building and you know, sets off a bomb. Right? These people were raucous demonstrators, some members of which acted in ways that inspired terror. So these were mostly peaceful, <laughs> mostly pe- peaceful people who were trespassing. And then some of them, the substantial portion, but still a minority, were were acting in, in dangerous, threatening ways. Terrorists in America, the same way black, brown, Muslim people have been. And even though it was a win to get the news and to get politicians to finally use that terminology, it's like, thank you, now you have to handle white supremacy. If we continue to call them terrorists, I think that that is kind of a cop-out. I know that the more countering terrorism programs that we put in are going to end up hurting our communities. For me, it was just like another mark on the shift of consciousness we've had around white supremacy in the last year. That's a great point. Yeah, that is important. And you're helping people. Okay. It's been uh, great to be with you again. I think, I think we need to close out with a little song. Yeah.
Bye.